This is Strange Assembly episode 222, Gen Con 50. I'm Chris Stevenson, and here with me today is Mike Cook. Hey. And this is Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. You can find us on the web at www.strangeassembly.com or your usual social media hangouts uh, at Strange Assembly on Twitter or facebook.com slash strangeassembly. So we are are here to talk about Gen Con. Sorry, it's uh, taken us a little bit to get our acts together. As we are recording, it is Sunday, September 3rd. Jay is not here because he's off at PAX Prime, right? That's what it's called now? He's at PAX Prime. Mike was going to be at Dragon Con, but they kicked him out for exceeding the sexiness threshold in the cosplay. So No no one's going to believe that lie. (laughs) No one's going to believe that lie. (laughs) But I appreciate it uh, all the same. (laughs) So... This is going to be one of two post-Gen Con episodes. And what we are going to have is a Legend of the Five Rings episode, which is not this. And then this, which is the non-Legend of the Five Rings episode. So the the Legend of the Five Rings episode will uh, have our Jack Vassal Memorial Fund charity auction winner. And that will be coming up. This episode and that episode... Uh, we're going to try something a little different, which is to have some live audio interspersed into the episodes. Uh, in the past, I've done entire like live from Gen Con episodes, and this year I've got a bit less audio than I would like because there was uh, an incident with my digital audio recorder wandering off Ooh. during the convention. So then what I have is really like, if I put it all together, it would be enough for an episode but half of it would be L5R and half of it would not be. And that's not, I don't think that's really what uh, people like. I think it, I think the segregation of the content works out reasonably well because there are people who listen only for L5R and people who don't care about L5R. Like I said, this is non-L5R. Now, I have my stuff organized in something resembling chronological order because there's so much going on that I have a really hard time keeping track if I don't put it in some sort of order for myself. So I hope that kind of organization works for you, Mike. Uh, organization? Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Organization, well... So I actually have quite a bit on my pre-Gen Con day. Mm -hmm. I showed up on... I actually did some... So I should not have done this. I've I've got to remember, especially now that it's further for me to get to Gen Con than it used to be. Like, I rolled in on Tuesday night, so I would be there all day Wednesday for the trade day stuff, and... That's neat if you're there, but honestly, it's probably not worth showing up a whole day early, especially since I then just waited in line on Thursday morning anyway, which kind of defeats part of the purpose of showing up on trade day. Mm -hmm. But I did uh, get to do some stuff on Wednesday, partially, you know, running around and, and doing some trade things for the Board Game Geek math trade. I did notice, so I think the the lines at this Gen Con ran so much more smoothly for the tickets than they did last year. I don't know if they improved their process in some way or... The will call line? Or if it's the fact that there was no new purchase line for bad. 
Yes, the will call line. So everything was the will call line. Right. Because they were sold out. So the only way that you could come was that if you either already had your badge mailed to you or you were picking it up at will call. I was picking up event tickets at will call. So that line was quite brisk. I mean, it wasn't short, but it was shorter than last year and, and moving faster. But the merchandise lines, they were selling out of some of the merchandise on Wednesday. Okay, what did they sell out of? Well, among other things, they sold out of extra large men's button downs, which I happen to know because I tried to buy one on Wednesday. <laughs> and they're like, oh no, whoop, yep, those are gone. Well, so the, right, I have many, many t shirts and I get Gen Con merchandise every year, but let's face it, I have many, many t shirts and I don't have that many days of the week where I can wear a t shirt. But I have a lot of days of the week where I can wear things like a long sleeve button down. Yeah. And there's some amount of geekery themed ones of those made, but not that many. So I was like, you know what, let's let's get something else. It was actually going to be in addition to the t-shirt this year, not instead of. It was just entirely me throwing more money at them. But I couldn't because other people had uh, waited in line first. I think I, I had seen the merchandise line. I'm thinking, well, that... That's ridiculous. There's never a line for the merchandise. I'm going to go run some other errands and then come back, and the line was still there. So they're actually, between now and September 6th, I think, you can go on the Offworld Designs website and pre-order like the reordering of Gen Con 50 merchandise. I'm assuming it was just because it was number 50. Everybody was super big on the merchandise. <laughs> but they sold out the... The attendance wasn't much more than last year. It didn't seem like it. No, but it was apparently it hit whatever the limit was. It was, you know, 60 plus 60,000 or something like that. Badges or, or like unique visitors. The turnstile is over 200,000, but that's right because each badge might be somebody showing up four days. Right. Uh, or, well, not each badge, but most of the badges. I'm not sure how many thursday or friday or saturday badges they a lot those were the i think the friday only badges were the last one to sell out because if you're right if you're going only one day it's either saturday or sunday yeah typically so at the the trade day things i i think probably the most interesting trade day thing that i did was habas i guess i could have crammed myself into the paizo one but that was already pretty full so so Haba is a, a German company that makes kids games, basically, usually higher quality stuff than your, you know, it's not you know, t- your typical Candyland or whatever. Right. And sure, uh, they're the, if, you go, if you see them, they're like in the bright yellow boxes. They actually only really started doing more game stuff in the U.S. I think in about the last 10 years, they've had a U.S. subsidiary for... A lot longer than that, but they started out as a wooden toy company, and the U.S. subsidiary mostly was toy. It was basically just toys until recently, and they've only been at Gen Con for four years, uh, which was kind of weird. I think when I first heard, like four years ago, they were like, oh, and Haba USA is going to be at Gen Con this year. It was sort of like, they weren't before? Huh. Odd. But... They had in well, they had in the president of the USA and then the the creative director for Haba, uh, the main thing. So he, I think he was, 
he, he's the designer on like maybe half of their games or something like that. And they had some know, hilarious, but sort of interesting things. Like they, their factory is in a town of 10,000 people in Germany. They employ 2,000 of the residents of the town. <laughs> okay. They play test their games at the local elementary school. They send prototype copies of the game to the elementary school. And they're like, but we have to make sure to rotate the stuff around or else you get K- the kids who are just way too good at games and way too used to them and they no longer are really a useful playtest. That's <laughs> 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 the, the sort of stuff you don't usually uh, think about. They have a series now that's called my, something like My First Game or My Very First Game where it's uh, kids. It, it's games for really young kids, which... If you know anything about the like U.S. testing standards, you almost never see games that are for super small children, in part because it, if they don't explicitly advertise it as, I think, 3+, you have to do all this extra product safety testing based on the assumption that you know one-year-olds are going to be putting everything that you make into their mouths and right. trying to swallow it. So they make these my very first game things, and one of the, the questions at the, the presentation was, was basically like, well, are two-year-old, can two-year-olds really play games? And his answer was, no. <laughs> like, you, you buy it when they're two, so they learn to get familiar with it as a toy, so then they can actually play it as a game when they're older. It kind of scales up. But, you know, you gotta, you got to remember that not everyone understands the concepts of this cube is a thing that you roll, and it matters what the picture on the top of it is, and then you don't care about the rest of it, and... I don't know. I I thought that was interesting. I ended up buying two Haba things later in the the con because I have I have a, a now seven year old, although six at the time of Gen Con, and a, a three year old about to be four. So they're kind of right in the middle, especially the four year old, right in the middle of the the Haba stuff. So we got Rhino Hero. None of, neither of these is new. I got Rhino Hero, and then uh, Prima Ballerina. Although I do wish they have like these specifically girl targeted games which they put in pink boxes. I'm like, come on. Girls can play games in yellow boxes, too. Yes, let's deny everybody of any color except for monochrome. (laughs) And the the Prima Ballerina is really a young child-aimed game. I mean, the game is you flip up the different, like, the the, the top and bottom of the ballerina, and then you have to do the ballet pose kind of thing. So if you uh, ever want to see me doing funny ballet poses... Too bad you're not invited to come to my house and play this with me. I'd look too silly. Uh, <laughs> I was interested in how that sentence was about to end, yes. <laughs> yes. No, we are not planning on making that our first YouTube video. Me me doing my my display review of, of Prima Ballerina. I got to, to look at several games later on Trade Day. The first one was Deep Madness. Uh, this was a, a thing that was kickstarted, and they're getting more towards their their production version coming out. So Deep Madness is uh, one of these miniatures focused games. It's a uh, it's got modular boards and uh, a horror vibe. Where and it's called Deep Madness because you're in an underwater station. And I got to play a, a Gen Con specific scenario that they had come up with for doing the demos, and I and it was a scenario where like the entire facility starts out flooded. I think it was designed for the demos because you kind of lost or won pretty quickly. 
So it, it made for a, a better experience to keep people moving through it right. more quickly. But I'm awesome. So we crushed, my group crushed it. Nice. We got that power generator. Well, because there's a lot of, right, you've, right, okay, like it's like a lot of things, you've got health and sanity sorts of stuff, but they, they did the sanity kind of differently where you could, you know, get sanity pips to, to accomplish this. And it there were some incentives not to do it, but like to try to get these conscience cards. But then because it was flooded, you also have to manage your air supply. And like how many actions can you get before you'd have to try to go back? I think that the correct answer for this scenario was don't ever try to go back and get oxygen. It's not worth it. Like either make it or don't. Well, if that's short, if it's short, I don't, I can totally see that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and it's as is common for these, right? If it's a, it's a full co-op. So if anyone dies, then Then everybody. Yeah. So you've got your, your nice little miniatures of your guys going around and all the monsters spawning to get other stuff. This particular scenario, we were literally just trying to like get the power back, get the full power back on so we could uh, restart the pump essentially to so we could unflood the station so we didn't all die. Hey. That was pretty fun. I don't know, like the availability, we're kind of in an awkward window. You can't kickstart it anymore and it's not out at retail yet. But that's that was fun to play if you're into these, you know, these like horror focused miniatures games. I got to play Dragoborn. Oh, yes. I, I have that. I own that game. Well, there you go. So why don't you talk? Because, I mean, all I did was do the demos. And I will. So the one thing I will note is that I. I don't know. It's, it's weird because I guess, like, if you shorten Drake Dragon, it would be Drago, like D R A G O, but usually that would be Draco. So every time I say this, I want to say no. It's Draco born, oh, not Drago. It's the, it's <laughs> but, the game that I enjoy that I think has the literal stupidest names ever. <laughs> like they just they sound terrible because you have Drago cross things and you have Drago shields. I'm like, no, you're exactly right. It should be like Draco shields or just shields. So it's kind of an, it's the newest game from Bushi Road. So uh, part of what drew me to it is I think the art looks actually, on the whole, really, really good. It's kind of like a magic-y type game, but basically you have three different forts. The top two cards of your deck are in the uh, the three different forts, so it's six cards total. And the whole point of the game is to take out all of your opponent's forts, which means attacking it. When you do an attack with a creature... If it does any kind of damage, it just does one point of damage, and the card that's there gets put up into your opponent's hand. Like a lot of the digital games are doing now, some cards will have a symbol, and if the card has a symbol that they just draw, that when they draw it out of the fort, they get to play it for free. But basically, you can have like two creatures in each fort. You can set a trap on each fort, and it's kind of like more forts, just a generic two cost, so you don't know exactly what's going to happen, and they have different effects. And you start the game with three banners, and the banners are essentially like, you start with three lands, and basically every creature in this game has haste. So as soon as you play it, you can attack. The only difference being the first turn, uh, the first player can attack on their first turn, of course. So you basically start with three lands, and aside from the first turn, uh, you draw, and then you take the top card of your deck and you essentially turn it upside down. So it's kind of like versus the 
the second card you draw is a resource of the color of just whatever color it is, and it loses everything else on the card. It just becomes like your fourth land, then your fifth land. Um, and there are some cards that will let you uh, like put down another resource or change themselves into resources. That's typically green ramping, just like you'd expect from green. But yeah, that's I don't know. Is is that enough of a? Uh, you basically, you just play down creatures. You try and blow up the court, uh, the cards out of their fort. Whenever you get their third, uh, their sixth and final card gone, um, that's the end of the game. At, at the end of the turn, it's it's pretty fun. It's got enough differences. Oh, I guess I should mention the dice. So you have three dice. The dice have to match the color of your banners. There's five different colors in the game, which are basically the magic colors. It's a little bit different, but not really. And whenever you roll the dice, you basically have two different options with them. The dice can either go as a zero X, where X is whatever you rolled, shield in front of the fort, a fort whose banner matches the color of the die. So if I have green, green, yellow, I can roll three dice and they will be green, green, yellow. You roll those every turn. Even if there's something you want, you have to roll them at the start of your turn. So say I roll a four, a five, and a three for the yellow. Um, that'll be an 04, an 05 for the two green forts, and an 03 for the yellow. Or you can, of any color, you can put it on a creature of any color. That creature gets plus one, plus one, but then that's uh, called Drago crossing them, and a lot of creatures get special abilities if they're dragon crossed at all, or if the dragon crossed with specific colored dice. Also, some spells will actually look at if, uh, if you have a die, uh, what that die's number is, and or if you have multiple dice, what those numbers are, and that'll actually change the effect of the card a bit. So something might give something plus one, plus one, but then there'll be, it'll look and say, okay, well, but if you have a yellow die that's one to three, then you actually get to hit two creatures, or sorry, one to three is you get to draw a card. Four to six is you get to hit two creatures with like plus one, plus one until the end of the turn. Yeah, or deal X damage, where X is the, it's the, d- the die the, your highest red die. Right, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I mean, and that's pretty much it. It's a pretty straightforward game. When you get the demo, or the trial decks, as they call them, it's like just a little fold-out thing that's... It doesn't really look... If it was a rulebook stapled together, it would be about 10 pages, maybe, a total. It's pretty basic. It's like a 50-card deck. Interestingly... So you have to pick three banners to start with, and your dice have to match the color of those banners. And those banners can be any combination of colors. But when you play something, you have to do a resource match. So if it's yellow, one of your resources that you're paying for it with has to be yellow. But there's no requirement on what's actually in your deck. So you can run a five-color deck, and just whatever you flip up for resource, that's what color you have. And in fact, some uh, some of the green thing is not just ramp. But hey, your next card can ignore the color cost that it normally needs. So they have like a five card a green, a five color green deck or whatever. But yeah, that's pretty much it. It obviously has comparisons you can make to Magic, and that oh, it's got five colors and it's got attacking creatures with power and toughness, and you know it's a CCG. But I didn't really think it played much at all like Magic. I mean, there was much more of a yeah. You're not you're not you're not decreasing a number for one thing. Yeah, well, and it's got things that that play catch up, like the things you're talking about. Every time one of your you your cards gets broken, it goes to your hand as another card, and maybe you get to do it for free. And if one of your forts is entirely busted, then you now have an extra die that you no longer have to use to defend that fort. Right. So you just have like f- essentially free resources to boost your creatures a little bit. 
I mean, and everything, uh, like I said, everything can attack the turn it comes into play. Although you are limited on, you can only have six creatures out at a time unless there's an ability. But yeah, two in each fort, right? Right. Yeah. So you can have pretty swingy games, which I think is both to its benefit and to its detriment. Yeah, and let's see what it it uses the lanes on defense, but not really on offense. Like right. anybody can attack anybody, right? But you have to assign your creatures to the particular forts and you can only defend with the ones that are there. Right, and you have to take down the Drago Shield first. So if it's like an 6 you have to do six damage to it. It's like magic where the damage is persistent until the end of the turn. And to block, you actually have to defend because you attack one at a time. But one creature can normally only defend one attack. Yeah, rolling a six on the shield that you put up in front of the forts is kind of saying, don't bother attacking me this turn. Go pick a softer target. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's it's interesting because it definitely it has probably the most parallel lines. It's like a hybrid between Magic and some of the other Bushi Road games because a lot of their games are more about a total number. Or like the Final Fantasy game and uh, Vice Schwartz are more about you have like five hit points or six hit points or seven hit points, which are shown by your cards rather than like a, just a Magic life total, whatever that you're decreasing. So to me, it almost feels as much like kind of like it feels like it's reinforced by mobile games, if that makes any sense. Like a lot of the stuff that was in this game, I've seen in other mobile games that were trying to iterate on like Hearthstone. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. and and you can buy like two deck starter sets, but yeah, unfortunately, at least unfortunately from my perspective, it is a collectible game. If you want to go whole hog, yep. it's the whole the whole booster pack thing. So my last thing for Wednesday was getting to take a look at Unicornus Knights from AEG. And this is what, what did Todd call it, a princess management game. It's a cooperative game where ultimately you have to try to take down the evil emperor. And so he's out on the board somewhere. You build this modular board. And there are there are tougher, there are other bad guys who are not not tougher than the emperor, but you know, leader bad guy leaders around on the board, and you you have to accumulate resources and armies so you can move and defeat the bad guys. But at the same time, the princess who's like leading your rebellion against the evil emperor, she is controlled by the game, but she's very much a glass cannon. Like she just smashes anything that she hits. But she just advances and attacks in an all in like based on an algorithm without any regard for her own survivability. And then if she gets defeated, you lose. So you have to do things like help or possibly hinder her to try to keep her away from a position where she's going to be destroyed. Uh, <laughs> uh, as you're on the way, uh, it's the game gets a little bit more mathy after that because you right you have to like calculate how much do i have to move these guys and to do that sort of thing that was interesting i'm not sure what i thought about uh all of the pitch on that the the sort of emphasis on the what uh, i guess some would call the non-politically correct elements of the game that because they basically just ported it from japan right without necessarily i'm like i don't know i guess that depends on who your audience is to like emphasize that as sort of like a marketing point yeah. So, but the underlying—I I don't know how much that really matters. But the underlying game was was pretty interesting that I saw. I mean, like they had it like just on these little mini demo setups, you know, again for you know demo reasons. But that was Unicornus Nights. So that's the wrap up on my Wednesday, which is before the convention really even 
proper started, so I should probably kick it back to you for something else, despite the, the Dragoborn thing. I guess that would be my first day, which was Thursday. So my Thursday, I showed up at 6.45. I kind of wanted to be there at 5, but I just cannot force my body to get up that early. And we didn't get into like uh, 1.30 or something like that, 1 o'clock in the morning, the night before, the, the night that morning, I guess. So I got there, got in line, waited that whole time, got in there, and then almost missed the end of the line. I actually did miss the end of the line, but it was something where you could kind of wait in this other area, which wasn't technically the end of the line, but then the line would move forward and you could go and join the line. So, you know. And when you say miss the end of the line, that's because there was, on Thursday, there was a point in time where Fantasy Flight went just like, that's it. Like, we're not, you're not even letting more people get in the line. It's just, it's too much. You're, we don't have any more space. You're not going to get it anyway. <laughs> right, no, um, and, and I understand it's, uh, you know, that's that's a tough situation. I do kind of wish they would just go ahead and do, like, a pre-opening line or something. Like, have somebody show up an hour ahead of time and be like, okay, this is going to be the line for Fantasy Flight. And then everybody can just go ahead and line up. And then just, you know, have have it go from there. So I know that's, that would be really hard to control, but... Yeah, like, yet another line outside in the mob... Yeah, yeah, I don't or have another area that you have people come in from. I, it doesn't seem that undoable. They already had one for the VIP line or whatever. It, it seems like you could have another one for like one or two of the booths that actually are going to have gigantic lines. You know, and I know it's one of those things that yes, this is a big year for FFG, but not every year is that big for them. So, you know, not every year is the relaunch of a game that's been around for twenty five years. Well, they are. They're always one of the handful of biggest. Right. Lines, uh, if not the biggest line. But, I mean, I, I think, I'll, and you'll probably talk about this more in the actual L5R podcast, but I still think as much as they were trying to prep for it, they still managed to underestimate exactly how big it was going to be. But it's one of those things, like, I, I just don't know that it's possible to know exactly how big it's going to be. Uh, though selling a 750-person or 700-person tournament out is a pretty good indication, I feel like. It, yeah, that just crushed everything they could have and that was that was doubling what they were originally planning to do for the tournament size right they sold through all the the l5r i mean fantasy flight does i think as best as it can yeah Uh, i mean there's just no way of getting around the 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 lines right no and this would just be another tweak just like okay there are going to be people when if you know you have a product this big i just me personally i would really have preferred it if like Two hours ahead of time, they had someone come out and say, okay, this is going to be the line for FFG. Please line up orderly or whatever. And at least that way, you know, then you don't have to worry about anybody running or anything. I don't know. Maybe that maybe that's not something they can really do. Well, the, the problem was they open the doors and then they have one person who's like the mobile end of the line. So even though I was right there near their booth, I had to try and catch up with that person because I didn't know exactly where they were when I when I got in there in the doors. And so then there's another set of doors that are further down, and by the time, you know, they both open at the same time, so then that set of doors, those folks, you know, were heading towards Fantasy Flight in just the normal path that they would be in, and they hit the end of line naturally faster than a lot of us could. So there were a lot of us who were sitting there, or a a number of us I saw, that were sitting there for like two or three hours, and we came very close to not being able to get the one product they were, or I don't know what product people were going for, but you know. Potentially missing that line. Well, yeah, there were only two 
major new products i find i think for fantasy flight this year i was actually kind of surprised last year they did that whole thing where almost all the stuff that they announced before gen con was available for purchase at gen con and so this year i was thinking like well there's legacy of dragon holt and there's the new civilization game and they didn't have anything for sale that they announced fairly shortly before well, they they had they had one thing, Twilight which Imperium. was which was Twilight Imperium Four. They had Legend of the Five Rings, which got announced, you know, a year and a half ago, right? And then Twilight Imperium Four. The other new things that they were handing out tickets for were like Smuggler Aces expansion for X Wing, right? Yeah, because it's the stuff. only other thing that sold out uh, other than L Five R the first day. Yeah, I mean, they didn't even have. I I was surprised that that they didn't have. Uh, well, they did. Have, oh, the Path to Carcosa. You were correct that that was there. That was yes. another thing they were handling handing the tickets out for. But they didn't even have like the new Imperial Assaults set. I was surprised that that wasn't there. I don't know if they even sold out of Path to Carco- Carcosa because I went back on Saturday and it was just on the shelf. Yeah. I don't know. I was I was mostly hitting up. I ended up entirely hitting Fantasy Flight for L five R. There were some other things I was interested in that weren't there. They didn't. They announced, but didn't have the like thirtieth anniversary version of the of the, of Star, the West Wars End Star Wars RPG, which yeah. which is probably good that they didn't have it. I don't know. That's kind of weird for me. On the one hand, that's a really cool thing for them to do, and the flavor stuff in the West End Star Wars games was was amazing. Like West End built a lot of. Yep the background of the Star Wars universe. I mean, like, just but what is basic stuff like... A Twi'lek being called a Twi'lek. Yes, yeah. I mean, they're, because they're right when you go back to the old toys from the 80s, the, the, they have names like Walrus Face, and, you know, <laughs> they, don't, they don't have, like, a normal Alien species Alien Yeah. Uh, and a lot of that came from West End, but I don't really like the West End game. I don't like the mechanics of it. I know a lot of people love it, but I, I was never one of them, so I... I mean, I know that there's a lot of role-playing games that kind of go straight to the shelf, but it's it's like, oh, I, I do not need to buy another Star Wars role-playing game that I know I am never going to play. I have to imagine that, they, obviously, it's been recompiled, because they've said it's been recompiled yeah. um, from the original. They're just trying to do the first two books, right? Or maybe. Well, no, I, I'd say maybe it's them testing the waters, and maybe they put out more, but I'm guessing not. I'm guessing this is going to be just a one-shot thing. I don't think it's intended to be anything other than a one-shot. I'm sure that if it actually sold well enough, they would make more of it, because why would you not if it sold well enough? But I don't think it's going to sell right. well enough. I mean... I, th- I think it'll probably sell exactly what they think it's going to sell. Maybe a little bit better. It'll sell well as one thing, but the fact that it sells well as a one-shot product does not mean that there's enough there to continue to support it, especially when they already have their own existing... Uh, Star Wars role-playing game? And they haven't released a price on that product, right? Because I'm guessing it's like 50 or 60 I would be quite surprised if it was less than 60 Right. It's with being two books. I would not be surprised if it was m- substantially more than that. But I would I would be su- I mean, I, I'd love it if it was less, but I would be surprised if it's less than 60 uh, Very. I would guess that they would aim at 60 because $30 per book seems like a pretty good like nostalgia price. Like, I don't I mean Fantasy Flight knows how to price things. Obviously, it's making money. Um, <laughs> yes, they are. I feel like that would be a pretty good price point. Like me personally, if I were to look at those books, it'd be like, 
that's good enough that I'm probably going to get enough value out of reading these and maybe going back and playing it once or twice to see how that goes. But if it's like 70 or 80, that I, you're going to greatly diminish your audience for it, I think. At 60, I think it's enough of a curiosity that you'll have a lot more people pick it up. Their psychological assessments are surely more valuable than, than, than mine. I mean, there's sure. a, I think there's a lot more volatility in price, like mm-hmm. interest versus price, when you're talking about 20 versus 30 versus 40. Like the higher it gets, the less, I think, probably the less elastic it is. There are certain mental price points, like... You know, Twilight Imperium Four going from a hundred to a hundred fifty or something like that. <laughs> like, you right. know. Well, I mean, well, at least with uh, Twilight Imperium, right? It's because they're incorporating all of the, uh, you know, a whole bunch of stuff into the game. It's it's easily one hundred fifty dollars worth of value if you thought the original with the expansions were. With this, I like it doesn't feel like they're trying to reintroduce the West End game. It's really just more, hey, look at this awesome hit piece of gaming history and we're going to re-release it for everybody to have fun with. Uh, it, so at that point, maybe it will go for a little bit more. Maybe you're right about that. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not saying it's going to go for more, but I six sixty is like the absolute bottom. I, I wouldn't be surprised right. at all. If as a two book set, it was 80 bucks. I, I wouldn't be surprised. At maybe all. the surprise, you will be 50. That would surprise me. I welcome pleasant surprises, but it <laughs> would be a surprise. I actually contemplated getting TI four, but so did I. I've, but I've never played TI, and it's always scared me off with the length of gameplay. And I'm like, I need to play it at least once before I pre-order this thing or order the thing. That's the problem. I mean, is that I would at something that's like four to eight or whatever the game like like that's such a long gameplay length. Mm-hmm. I would buy it, and I would have to make a tremendous effort to get it played, and I would probably get it played once. Right. Well, like Rebellion, I I bought it and it's you know it's like eighty or whatever, and it's only two, it's two or four players, right? So very easy. It's about as easy as you can get for getting a number of players, and it's about three hours, and I can barely get that to the table. So Twilight Imperium feels like it would be real hard. It, yeah, you can't just like show up at a meetup with TI four and be like, let's go. Right. No, it has to be an event, well, just like the Game of Thrones board game that they have too, right? It's like you really need max players on that, so you need people who are willing to commit for that time. Yeah. And, then, and as you get older, that just gets harder and harder to find or it's rare and rarer. It, yeah. It's, it's tougher. Maybe I'll like at some point I'll be retirement age. Right. And then right. I can go back and worry about these then. Uh, I'm like the kids will be, the kids will be out of the house. Cross your fingers. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's $150. So it's, it's very expensive, but Right. If I buy three L5R core sets and the playmat, which I don't really need at all, but I bought anyway, that's almost as much as TI4. And if you're talking like physical component-wise, it's not a bad deal at 150 or something. It's not overpriced at 150. It's expensive, right? But you're like, I see why that costs what you're charging for it. Right, right, right. There's a reason. I did also have my own stand in line on Thursday, and also I went to L5R first. Uh, I mean, Fantasy Flight. So I got that, right? We hear more about L5R in the next episode, but let's. But suffice it to say that many of my weekend plans were contingent on, you know, actually having an L5R box. So I did succeed at that, yay. During my wait in the line, I got the Race for the Galaxy app, which. Uh, as far as I know, just recently came out. It does its job very well. It's one of those games where, 
like which, what did this happen like with Ascension too, where like you play the app and you're like, oh, I'm never going to play the physical game of this anymore. The app runs very smoothly, and you get to and you can p- get the same experience so quickly. Yeah, for for me, it's it's just different experiences. I totally get what you're saying, but for me, it's like I can sit and play the Race for the Galaxy app for like literal hours. Hours will just disappear. I don't know why that game just sucks me in. But I also have a physical game, and I've played it since I've had uh, the app, and it's just different. I feel bad for whoever's playing with me after the app, because the AI in that app is so savage, and I played with, like, three of the toughest AI. And, like, once you get used to that level of competition, it's, like, what you have to just, like, know that game in and out to start to be able to compete at that level. I usually play with the full player count, with all hard AIs, and I usually do not win. Uh, <laughs> I'm about 25%. I'm probably less than that. I don't, I don't know what that, that says. I'm like, maybe it says that the AIs uh, are really good. Maybe it says that I'm really bad. No, AI is really good. Okay, yeah. If I play, if I play one-on-one, oddly enough, my, with, with less competition, my win rate goes up. But, I mean, if you play against the easy AI, you just crush them. Right. Well, I mean, actually, very much like the Ascension, I think it's just there's enough randomness in this game with four people. It's just a matter of randomness kicking in a lot more often than it does with two people. I think the AI is tougher on this. If I play Ascension oh, yeah. no, you're right. against anything other than the hard AI, it's a joke. If I play against the hard AI, I win like 90% of the time, right? at least. Yep. So so this one is is definitely tougher. And this is not the place for the... Uh, we're going to do a full-on review of Race for the Galaxy, but the app does a very good job. It looks like you can already buy a couple of expansions as in-app purchases. That I have not done. I think all three of the... Well, the three expansions that don't have like extra boards and stuff are the, the, with just mainly cards that they've converted over. You can they, they, put, they had all of them available at launch. At launch. Yeah, most of the Race for the Galaxy stuff has... Expansions have some stuff that you can just throw in, and then a lot of stuff that you can't just throw in. So, I mean, they'll... Uh, they can. I'm sure they can just release packs that are just, here's some more cards, and right. yeah, just not try to implement whatever the other Although crazy it, stuff is. It's been a long time since they've even put out an expansion pack for that game, or like an expansion for that game, because they had a lot already, so I don't know if they even plan on doing it anymore. Well, I mean, they did Roll for the Galaxy yeah. now for the physical stuff. But I got that. I was a little... While I'm on digital land, I was planning on getting the Legendary DXP app, which they had like a reduced price on the in-app purchases for Gen Con weekend. And that's basically the... I don't know, you hate Legendary. Yep. That's a copyrighted, content-free version of Legendary. So no Marvel, no Buffy, no Aliens, whatever. Just, Just playing that... But it's only for tablets. I don't have an iPad. That sucks. So, and I hadn't even noticed that. At some point, I went over to ask him. I'm like, I keep trying to download, so I can't even find it. It's up. And he's like, Oh, do you have an i? Do you have a tablet? And I'm like, No. I'm like, Well, there you go. I'm like, Okay. Well, thanks. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, a lot of board games, and I don't know what you know exactly the challenges are with either one, but the processor, the the technical stats are essentially the same between your phone and a tablet, right? They're, they're not very different. But I guess it's just the real estate, the screen real estate. They program for those sizes, and they have a lot harder time compressing it down a lot of times, I guess. Because the Seven Wonders app, I think, is only iPad right now as well. My impression is that usually it's just they, they decide, like, it, like we cannot put this out at an acceptable quality on the uh, right the iPhone or something. That if you, you try to play it, you'll think it's terrible. We're not going to do that to you. 
uh, or our brand name. Even games like Ascension, they'll do things like your hand goes down and you have to tap your hand to bring it back up so you can see what cards are in your hand, etc., to get it to work. And that's got a couple of rows. If you're playing Legendary, you have the row of bad guys to be defeated, you have the row of stuff that you can buy, you have the little static spot for, I don't know, whatever the generic version of Maria Hill is, uh, and then whatever they whatever they do for masterminds and schemes and... There's a lot of stuff out on the board when you set up a game of, of Legendary. But, uh, what are you going to do? So I went to the Fantasy Flight line, I got my L5R nonsense. Weirdly enough, the, the thing I'm kicking myself the most for, for not buying, because I wasn't thinking about stuff like this being there, and then when I saw it, I'm like, oh, huh, maybe I should get that. Like I, But I, I try to like moderate myself at Gen Con and not... You can't just buy every random thing that seems interesting. Yeah. And then when I went back later, they were gone. So I failed to buy Lore of the Bloodlines for for V20, for Vampire of the Masquerade 20th Anniversary Edition. Ooh. Oh, well. So Paizo sold out of their bajillion copies of Starfinder on the first day. I did not buy that because I already have the PDF of it, so it didn't really seem fair to take it away from someone else who was desperate to read it for the first time. Right. Well, and that doesn't have any monsters in it, right? That's what somebody was telling me. It does not. No. There was like the first contact thing from Free RPG Day, but yeah, you have to uh, wait for the alien thing. But that's okay. I mean, you can. There's still plenty of ships to fight against, or sure. NPCs, or. And then you got to if if you wanted, you could play a bunch of Starfinder on the day. They had the the first Starfinder Society events. Which I did. I guess I can skip ahead. So since I'm mentioning it, I can just kill what my Sunday is. So yeah, over the weekend I not, I got to play some Starfinder stuff, and then I uh, if you weren't in one of the main events, you go through and like do the the demo in five parts. Basically, there's a correct order to them, but you didn't have to do them in that order. And then if you got if you got all of them done, then you could fill them up, and it got you boons and stuff for the organized play for Starfinder. So I I got that wrapped up right near the end of the day on Sunday. So if I ever find the time to be able to get out and really do, you know, the Pathfinder or Starfinder Society stuff, I'm ready to go on my character. Starfinder is great, by the way. Awesome. I'm usually not super exuberant in my reviews, which is not really what, if you're a company, you want in a reviewer, I think. <laughs> like you kind of want somebody who's exuberant about your stuff. Right. I'm not usually so much for that, but like Starfinder, I think that Starfinder, and I, this this is overly emphatic to say for a game that at the time had not even come out yet, but I feel like it's the, probably as a, as a game, probably like the best science fiction role-playing game? Well, I mean, there's not, well, I guess there is, Or actually. science fiction slash science fantasy. Right. I was going to say, there's not a whole lot of competition, but actually there are, especially now. Right, it doesn't have a license. So... Right. If you're like, I want to play the Star, I want to play a Star Trek game, or I want to play a Star Wars game, or I want to, and literally the Morphidius Star Trek launched at uh, Gen Con, basically. Yes, Modiphius had the Star Star Trek Adventures came out, and you will. That is one of the interviews that I have, so we'll like leave that for the interview mostly. Yep. But you can also, we had reviews up of Star Trek Adventures and Starfinder on the website from before Gen Con. So you can go to strangeassembly.com. That's not that many posts down because I don't, you know, 
do anything like have a new post every day. Uh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that hit two, and that also, they've got a slew of stuff set to come out for that. They had a, Paizo had a, they did have a whole bunch of things because they launched this stuff with all the accessories. Right? Like it's, it's Starfinder, and then it's, uh, and then also you can get the player folio, and you can get the pawns, like the Starfinder core book pawns, which I'm totally going to get, by the way, and map stuff, all this, all this accessory stuff, and and s- supplemental things that that come out along with it. That stuff got cleared out. I think by Sunday, the only Starfinder anything that they had anywhere in the booth was a few of the like map pieces. Not just the core books were gone, but all the all the folios were gone, all the pawns were gone, everything gone. But they didn't have it on display in a case. Uh, WizKids does Pathfinder miniature stuff, but they had, a, I think, maybe a Ninja Division set of pre-painted minis on display that are going to be coming out for Starfinder, like to match the Iconics. Mm-hmm. And those looked, those looked pretty good. I There should be a picture of those up in the best of pictures if you're on our our Facebook page. There's a bunch of pictures from Gen Con that's that's in there. I so I did that. I bought Buffy, legendary Buffy from Upper Deck. I don't know what else there is to say about that. It's legendary. It's Buffy. We talked about it beforehand. I did get a free versus two PCG expansion with that. Sorry, I don't know. I don't know what to do with that. I don't. Uh, I don't have that. I thought you liked. The, I thought you liked the the versus two PCG. Where did that not work out? I did initially. But then I figured out very quickly that Thanos was so incredibly broken and a lot of the heroes were so useless in the initial set that it really dampened. It it just came out in a time that was very thick with other things. And a lot of the people who you would think would be the audience, which is the people who used to play Versus, a lot of them actually didn't like the new Versus in my experience. But they're like... Oh, uh, universally, the was like, I understand why they simplified this so that they can try and sell it to more people, because Versus had its problems and it was complicated. But at the same point, they just wanted Versus again. They didn't want this new version. So it kind of fell on its face locally. And I'm sure that's one of those things, right, like LCGs, where they just don't have to have the the big uh, customer base that CCG does. But they're still successful for the company. So I don't have anybody to play it against. And they actually did release a fixed Thanos, so, you know, that's good for them. But... Uh, yeah. <laughs> there you go. There's my versus review, I guess, or my experience, anyways. Yeah. Well, you got your choice between a if you spent enough money at the upper deck booth, which was like buying a like a big box full size game. Basically, it was you. You either got an A Force set or a or one, or one of the defenders, and I went with A Force because I'm kind of tired of the Netflix Marvel. And I, th- I think it was that version of the Defenders, not like the goofy old Doctor Strange, Silver Surfer, Namor kind of Defenders. It's more um, Marvel Knights Defenders. So I went with A-Force, which is, I'm assuming, the that's the alternate universe, Secret Wars, something vaguely like all-female Avengers, I guess is what it was supposed Basically. to be presented <laughs> as. And I haven't done anything with it, because it has a warning on it, like... You really should have the base set to play this, so it's like, well, maybe if I open it up, we could play it, but it doesn't sound like it would work very well without owning the base game. So you you would actually need like a second expansion minimum. I I need like one of each, and then we could play defenders against a force. Yeah, you could kind of jank it together. Yes. <laughs> well, let's not do that. Great. 
So all of that was before the doors opened at 10. And then what I did when I... One of the, the, the things about Gen Con is that if you're in the hall, it's hard to demo games that you want to demo. Yeah. You often have to be willing to stand in line to demo a game because there's just so many people in there and only so many tables. And you can get in, but there's a good chance that at the particular point in time you walk up to a table, they're already waiting. And so I had wanted to play Edge of Darkness from AEG. And so what I did was right before 10 o'clock, I went over to the edge of one of the two Edge of Darkness demo tables that was set up and sat down and waited for the doors to open <laughs> everybody <laughs> to come in. <laughs> well, because, right, if I... In that early access phase, you're never going to be able to get a demo because everybody's buying stuff. Right. Like, that's what people are doing. They're going there to buy stuff. And if you don't, like I said, if you don't sit down right at the beginning, then you're going to have to... Every table is going to fill up right when all the people come in at 10 o'clock. Because there are still going to be a lot of people who are beelining straight for buying stuff. But at that point, there's a lot of people who aren't. Or it's somebody who would like to buy something, but they look at the line at the place they like to buy and like, I don't want to stand here for two hours. So I'm going to go do something else. So I got to play Edge of Darkness. And if you remember, this was the original card crafting design. Card crafting game design, which John Clare pitched to AEG. And I guess they were like, we like that mechanic. Let's make some other games first using it. So you had Mystic Veil that came out at Gen Con last year, and you had Custom Heroes came out this year, and then Edge of Darkness, I think they're aiming to put that on Kickstarter early next year. I think they want to make sure that the Thunderstone quest is like out before they put another thing on Kickstarter. Makes but sense. it's going to be a Kickstarter. And well you say it makes sense, but there's an awful lot of places that I mean, it's some of those like Seamon, like, okay, yeah, whatever. That's that's their normal distribution model. Who cares? But yeah, there are, there are definitely some places that, you know, you put the next thing on Kickstarter before they really got a handle on the first Kickstarter. Right. But they, yeah, they want to avoid doing that. And so I, I actually also have played Custom Heroes now. And so I'm, maybe I'm taking something out of the sales of Custom Heroes since I haven't talked about that yet. But like, I like Edge of Darkness the best out of the card crafting games. And Edge of Darkness is a it, it's fully competitive. It, like the the flavor makes it sound like it's might might be some kind of co-op thing, but it's not. You're set like in a like it's a city on the edge, right? It's the edge of darkness. You're on the borderlands and it's I guess the darkness is the same force that's corrupting the veils in Mystic Veil. Oh, okay. Yeah, and you're doing two sorts of actions, one of which is, like, there's some stuff that's, like, building up your deck. Well, it's not your deck, really, but... Like the main deck, the shared deck? It's building up your cards that are in the main deck. And then there's right. other stuff that is threats coming in from the outside, and you have to be able to prepare to face those threats. Actually, the way that the threats work, it's it's sort of a dice tower, a, a, like a weird dice tower, where there's, I think, four, three. I think there's there's three threats up at any one time. Or maybe it's four and I'm just misrecalling. Whatever. Three, four, doesn't matter. And you drop dice in to it of the colors that match the players. And then when a threat gets up to eight dice on it, it will attack. And who it attacks depends on what the dice on it are. So you, you kind of get an idea of when the monster is likely to attack and who it might attack, but you don't really know. 
So you can use that to decide whether or not you want to try to preemptively take that out. But the main thing is, yeah, you, you have this central deck that starts off right with, uh, uh, shockingly, with a bunch of junk in it. And then you start with your own cards that are marked as yours. And I say cards kind of loosely. It's it's more like Mystic Veil where it's just all plastic stuff put into sleeves. There's really no underlying, there's no underlying card. The quote-unquote card is just however many pieces of plastic are put in the sleeve. You pull a certain number of these out of the row and you can pay influence to skip some and you want to have at least one of yours every turn, but not that many because it lets you, every turn you get to put another augmentation into one of your, or well, they're called augmentations in Custom Heroes. I don't remember what they're called in Edge of Darkness. You get to put one more augmentation in one of your cards and then use those for the effects. And later you can pick up other players' cards, which you then have to pay the other player to use, which is very worth it, by the way. don't If, if you happen to ever play this, like next year, don't be dissuaded from picking up other players' cards when they're really good. But then when somebody else uses your card, they then give it to you, so it's automatically part of your hand at the start of your next turn. And there's there's a variety of different strategies you can do as far like trying to accumulate victory points while engaging in these activities. We played with a particular setup with 10 different, let's say, buildings, for lack of a better word. But I think there's 25, maybe, in the box. So there's a lot of different setups you can do, and each building has a particular effect and then has a particular augmentation that comes with it. So it also defines the ways in which the cards can develop. You have a certain number of workers in addition to all this card thing, but like in order to assign a worker, you have to play a card that says you can put a worker here, and then there will be things like for every two workers you have here, your hand size is increased by one, or you can then play you play the card to put the workers on the spot and then later you play the card to pick the workers back up again to do an effect like go fight the monsters or uh, whatever you want to do but i thought edge of darkness was fun and definitely worth checking out i mean i only obviously only got to play it one time sitting there but i got to play almost an entire game i think i had to bail before the last turn started because i was time to go over to the Kiku Matsuri L5R launch tournament. But I got to play almost a whole a full game. They were having they were just doing full games for the demos. But I thought that was that was pretty good. Custom Heroes. Obviously I already said I didn't like it as much. It's fun, it's a trick-taking game. It's a ladder card game where you again have these augmentations and you can change the powers on the card. So if like you really need to play a pair of sevens and you have a 7 and a 5, you can, and you have a plus 2 augmentation, you can put it in, pair them up, and you can play it down as a pair of 7s, but now that card is permanently altered for the rest of the hands, for the rest of the games, no matter who it is who draws that. There are also a, a number of, of structural things they have going on with the game that you wouldn't think about, like there's an augmentation that, if you're in second place, gives you the ability kind of like bet the farm, and you automatically start with one of those, so you kind of like get a one once per game chance to try to get back in it. You play six normal hands, and you only really need to win two hands to have enough points to win, but you have to get enough points, and then you have to win a hand. You cannot win the game without winning a hand again. So there's no ability to like get really far ahead and then be done, and you're also never out of it. 
because they have this showdown at the end. If nobody just flat out wins in the six rounds by getting enough points and then winning a hand, if you can keep whoever's in the lead from winning a hand, then whoever wins the final normal hand automatically makes it to the showdown along with whoever has the most victory points. So no matter how badly you've been doing, it's always possible that you pull it out at the end by winning the last normal hand and then winning in the showdown. So it's sort of an interesting balance of ways to make it, obviously it has to matter that you're winning hands, but without having anyone in possibly like a six-player game being just completely out of it and having no reason to play anymore. So both of those are by John Clare. Custom Heroes is now out. Edge of Darkness is a Kickstarter next uh, next quarter, first quarter, I guess, yeah. yeah. And that's basically the end of my Thursday for this episode, because it's just all L5R from here out. Most of my Thursday was just getting L5R. And then once I actually had accomplished that feat, I sat down for like an hour to recuperate, and then I headed over to Genesis, because I got a ticket for it, like I said in the, the previous episode I was in, and I thought it was going to be like a one-hour demo type thing. And no, it, is a, it was a full four-hour session, which I should have known from the fact that it was $6, but I was just so excited about it, I didn't even really think about the price because 6 bucks is so, you know, really kind of insignificant for, for an event or whatever. Uh, it, it, well, it didn't have an end time, it just had a start time, which was uh. part of the other thing, which is fine because I was so wiped. I was totally ready to just sit there for four hours and role-play. And even then, I was not driving the role-playing. I was just kind of chipping in when I could. So Genesis is, I don't know, it's like, if you like the Star Wars RPG, you are going to like this, because it is 98% the same system, maybe 95% the same system. I haven't played Star Wars recently enough to tell you exactly what the differences were between it and Genesis, but for the most part, they're they're pretty... Like, there, there are things that could probably be backported into Star Wars if they really wanted to. But it was fun. Like, I, I really enjoyed that system. So it, being able to use that system to play through a Terranoth adventure, which is the Terranoth is their fantasy world that they use for all the Rune games, like Runebound and Descent and those type of games. So that was pretty fun. And the funny thing is, I've actually played enough of those games they make that world very consistent. Like, I know a lot of the lore of that stuff. So, like, when the, we were, like, when he was describing what the main villain was doing, I'm like, oh, I know exactly who this is, and I was right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, it, you know, it didn't detract from the fun of it at all. And, of course, you never get that much lore. Even in a game like Old Runebound, which was the first game that was in that world, even in that, which was heavily, oh, here's RPG encounters. So it was kind of like you're each kind of individually doing your own RPG while everybody else has to sit and wait. It still didn't give you that much lore. So it's kind of cool getting the, the names and the places of things because there's just not really ever been any other place. So I think it's a good system for them to be able to just throw some system books down and, you know, then you can get, you get Netrunner out in it. You can get Tyranoth out in it. You could get Cthulhu out in it. I think Cthulhu would probably need a little bit more to it. Like, I definitely think it would need to be the most custom, because you've got to account for some kind of sanity, which you could do. Yeah, and they announced at the in-flight report, I believe, they announced that the first two worlds 
for Genesis will be Terranoth and Arkham Horror Files, not L5R. L5R, not one of the initial... I think this system could be L5R, and I think it is a perfectly competent system, and it could work. At the same point, I wouldn't put it past them taking the opportunity to make a new product for L5R, just because that feels like another way they can make more money, and because the system is different enough from the old L5R I don't even know if they have anything to the roll and keep because like uh, right Wick used roll and keep for the new for his new version of Seventh C. So I don't know what the copyright looks like for roll and keep. So I don't even know if that would be something they're interested or you can't copyright game mechanics. Oh, okay, well never mind. You can copyright the exact like the wording that you use to present them, but right. that you can't really get so around. So you can copyright no. like tap, but not turning ninety degrees. Well, you have to patent to do something functional, so Wizards actually right. have that patent right, right, right. on things. I don't know that anybody has a patent on this. Now, that doesn't mean that they're just going to go and lift things wholesale from other stuff. Sure. But, I mean, Wick used to be involved in the L5R, and he may have licensed it in some way. Like, he right. had to license 7C back from AEG. Well, he bought the license, right? I don't know exactly what it was, but AEG owned it, and he he's either... I don't know if he made him like a flat cash payment or a, a royalty fee or yeah. or whatever it yeah, is. Yeah, I don't know exactly what, but, the, the, what they said. I think at the Kickstarter was that he basically purchased that the world from them, but gave them they retained a right to do the card game in the future if they wanted to. Yeah, which they won't. Was how it was explained. Which they're not going to do since Doomtown no. <laughs> did not work as an ECG. But they just do not seem interested in anything that's not a board game anymore or like that style. They tried with. With Doomtown, right. but... I think they just want to go a different direction for a while, which makes sense. They did that for so long. I can see where it'd be frustrating. It'd be nice to do other things for a while. Regardless of exactly what the legal niceties are, I am sure... I'm sure... I'm, I'm while, while having no personal knowledge whatsoever, I would be completely knocked on the floor if AEG's purchase of Legend of the Five Rings did not include the ability to make more roll and keep stuff. Right. Right, it literally included being able to print the existing role playing game books. Right. And release and sell those. So I, I don't know. And digitally. It, yeah, including digitally. So I mean, it's theoretically possible that they aren't allowed to make new L5R stuff using Roll and Keep, but that would make no sense. Right. No, and I don't know that they would really split hairs over that because they're not making RPGs anymore, anyways. I think they'd much rather have that, that be a friendly condition or whatever. Yeah, but I mean, just even setting that aside, they're not, I mean, that's not right. going to be an. It's not an issue. Well, I'll I'll be interested to see what they do either way. Let's face it. I will buy it. Whatever they do, either way for the yep. L five R stuff. So, anyhow, we can say for the L five R episode what I think what I would like them to do with the L five R RPG. Uh, right. Well, yeah. Then the only reason we brought it in here is just you know its relevance to Genesis. Yeah. Which was not on sale at all. Like that demo wasn't the only thing I got from Genesis was I got to keep my character sheet that they gave me, which was like a pre-made character sheet that actually had the art for the character I was playing. Yeah. There were, there were multiple things. They even had banners up for things that weren't for sale. That's actually something I wanted to talk about maybe because this is really more of my Saturday because Thursday I did line for L5R thin went to the RPG. Then that was basically it for, for Gen Con for me. I was just, wiped and then the next day was entirely the l5r tournament i got 35th so i'm pretty happy about that unfortunately the cut was 32 and that was number five crane so no hot status for me 
But that was my entire Friday until like one in the morning because I played and stayed the whole time. But then my Saturday, I actually went through and got some stuff. Well, actually, uh, uh, I did get some stuff on, uh, but I'll touch it on that in a second. Uh, so I went, actually went back to the Fantasy Flight booth to look at the other stuff because by the time I got in there, I was so exhausted. I'm like, I just, I just want to get my cores. I want to get out. So I picked up Path to Carcosa because I guess I missed that ticket because I got the t-shirt and the L5R corsets, but I missed the ticket for Path to Carcosa because I guess the t-shirt guy had it and I didn't realize it. Uh, I thought he just had the t-shirts. So I picked up a couple of those because I've played through a lot of that game and I really, really like it. I really like the Arkham Horror LCG card game. Let me interrupt for a second. You said you picked up a couple of those. You have to buy more than one of those? Yeah. Okay. No, I picked up a couple because I I wanted one for me and I knew somebody else was going to want it. Um, And Arkham Horror's distribution has mostly evened out. For most of FFG's products, it's evened out. But, like, for whatever reason, this time last year, they had a lot of products that had a lot of distribution problems. I don't know exactly what was going on, but... So I just picked up a couple copies, because I figured somebody would probably want it a little bit early. There was no need for me to get two okay, copies. Okay, okay. I thought, yeah, I thought you were saying, like, I'm like, oh, do you... I, I didn't realize for the Arkham Horror Deluxe boxes they wanted you to buy two. If you really wanted to keep multiple decks for yourself and not have to... Even then... There's basically no reason to get two copies. Yeah, no, I mean, you buying one of each after the core set is enough for you to build one deck that is whatever you want. I mean, really, if you buy two of the cores, you can keep three to four decks, probably. You can put more decks together. It's just if you literally want the... You want to be able to make a deck that has exactly what you want in it, Oh, yeah, I know. You can do three to four decks with exactly what you want once you start getting experience in. Yeah, it's... Yeah, because as long as you're not trying to do multiple of the same faction character, Uh, there's enough difference that you actually can keep about three perfectly tuned to what you want decks with just one of everything and maybe two of the cores. Yes, but Fantasy Flight would like you to buy your own copy of each, not just just borrow from the guy who has all of them. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Sure. Well, but also... When you play solo, I, I feel like you just play two decks with that game. I don't feel like you ever just play one character. Oh, no, I don't think you'd do that. Solo. No. So that's the, that's the main thing where it's important to me is, okay, I, can I play two characters? Yes, you can pretty pretty easily. Anyway, so I, I got Path to Carcosa. The only other thing, uh, I got the Crane playmat. Thank you, by the way, for getting that for me. <laughs> <laughs> even though it was actually in the booth by the time I was there, even, I think, on Saturday, although a couple of them is up. Yeah, I wasn't sure if that what was going to go with those, but like, right. yeah, I saw those. I'm like, do you guys want these? I don't, I don't know how many of them they have. <laughs> they have plenty, it um, turns out. But I also was tempted by Twilight Imperium four, but I was like, I just need to hold off. And this is such a big purchase. I would really like to give this money to my uh, friendly local game store rather than just straight to Fantasy Flight. As much as I like Fantasy Flight getting money, they get money. <laughs> it's not dependent on me, although they already get a lot of my money. Anyways. And I picked up the uh, Runebound because they had, they finally had the Latari Elves Army expansion. And all they had was just the base box. Do you mean Rune Wars? Oh, sorry, yes, Rune Wars, okay. the miniatures. Okay, sorry. sorry. I probably said Runebound, didn't I? Yeah, I was just yeah, well, checking to make sure I'm, yeah. They had a recent Runebound release, which lets, which is like a bigger box that let you do Runebound the new second or third edition, I think. You can do it like co-op, and you can do it more competitively it's a, it's a bigger much bigger box than the other expansions but i did not get that because I, I had that on order already but those were really all i got but there was like there was a lot of ffg stuff i was wanting that i just 
they just didn't have that they announced like even a month ago. I was expecting the Rebels Star Wars RPG book. I kind of expected they might have. They didn't have that. Yeah, that was one of the ones that they had the banner up for. I'm like, ooh, is it? Yeah. No. no. Nope. I went through all those books. I'm like, none of these are what I was like, because I, I'm kind of curious. It seems like it's just kind of agnostic or it kind of touches on multiple things rather than being for any one system, because it's not branded for any of the systems that I saw. Well, the coloring... Oh, it's Force and Destiny, isn't it? That kind of matters, and it kind of doesn't, because remember that one of Fantasy Flight's objectives in making those is, no matter what (laughs) the branding on the front of the book is, they want there to be something that's interesting in there for anyone in any system, right? right? And there's, there's absolutely no reason that you can't play all of those together oh no absolutely not I, i'm just like in fact i kind of expect you to most of the but, time but most of but you typically they'll have the coloring and will typically like in a subtext have whatever the system it is under but the rebels one doesn't it, it's more neutral too i don't think it's exact force colors force okay. i might be wrong either way i was interested in that book because i love rebels to my core i just absolutely adore that show so they didn't have that, which was a little disappointing, but, I, you know, it wasn't like I was exactly expecting them to have it. I think we kind of got, I don't know, spoiled is the right word. We kind of got used to what happened last year, maybe. Right. And we're thinking that announcements of things were more like of announcements of what they're going to have to buy at Gen Con as, instead of announcements of stuff that will be coming out at some point over the rest of this year and... You can demo it maybe at Gen Con. Right, yeah, well, that's the thing. A lot of that stuff you couldn't even demo, although, I mean, some of that stuff makes sense you couldn't demo. You can't really demo a Rebels book. A lot of it's expansion stuff, which is... Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, they Fantasy Flight is expansion land. It, yeah. it turns... Well, they do that because that's what we buy. If If we didn't buy more and more expansions of this and Dynasty packs of that, and, you know, then they would... Then they wouldn't make as many of them. They'd make more standalone games, but we... We, right. You know, I buy Mansions of Madness, and then I buy all the expansions to Mansions of Madness, and then I buy, let you know... But, but I think there's something to be said for, if you make a really good game, I would rather buy an expansion for that game than a wholly new game that I may or may not like at all. Because uh, it's pretty rare for a game to really, really hit, and it, I would much rather have an expansion for a game that really hit overall. You know, obviously not just for the rest of the time, but then just a new game that's kind of like, eh, I don't know. And their quality has been high enough on the whole that typically it's worth it any time they put out an expansion. So, If I didn't want to buy expansions, whatever, I wouldn't buy them. I, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, mean, it's not, I buy beyond the threshold or whatever because I'm like, I really like Mansions of Madness. Mm-hmm. And I know that this will give me a play, a way to, you know, have another, some more plays of something I really like that makes it different and fresh. And yeah. Well, the same thing with Arkham, right? Not only does it give you more... The Arkham Horror card game, not only does it give you more stuff to do, more decks to go through, more uh, stories to go through, uh, encounters or whatever, it it also gives you more cards, which gives you a chance to build different decks to go through all the previous content with those new cards. It really starts to compound about what you can actually do with it, which is really good. But so I got the Latari Elves, but all they had was the box set. I got the Call to Path to Carcosa, but that's all they had was just the new big box set. I wanted Dragon Holt, they didn't have that. I wanted Rebels, they didn't have that. I wanted, oh gosh, what else was there? There, there was a number of things that seemed like they would be there. Oh, I was kind of interested at the Empire, Empire at War, which is the newest Destiny set. 
but they didn't have any of those, although they had plenty of the, the first two sets. Yeah, it was, it was kind of surprising what they did and didn't have, but not that it really matters. It saves, it saves me some money and lets me buy some, play some things. This is the, this is, if we're not careful, this is going to turn into stuff that wasn't for sale at Fantasy yes. Flight's booth, the podcast. No, it was just weird because, like you said, because they actually had the big banners. Although I actually, because I had to wait in that line, I got to watch 50% of the game of, uh, or the demo game of the Fallout board game, which seems really good. I'm really interested in that. I've heard people say that it, it sounds in some ways like Runebound the way it does the system, or is that completely off base? I wouldn't say it's completely off base. It's it's similar in that it is an adventure game where you reveal hidden tiles, and you, I mean, there's no hidden tiles in Runebound, but you go around a board trying to collect things to achieve a goal, which is generally what Runebound is. And there are number like Mage Knight, I think, does a lot of this. There, there are a number of adventure games that are like this. And the flavor is spot on from what I saw, which is the really important thing for that game. To go back to my Friday, and I'm 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 hopefully getting things right between Friday and Saturday. I think I mostly have so most most of my Saturday was the L five R tournament starting at noon, and then Pathfinder in the evening. But I did that did give me a couple of hours early on to go, you know, again try to like let's try to get seats at demos and, and things in the exhibit hall. So. I went to the the Catalyst Game Labs booth because they had two things that I wanted to play, one of which I had known was going to be there the whole time, and then the other one which I had somehow managed to miss was going to be there until right before the the convention. And the the former was Master of Orion Conquest. It's a two-player versus deck-building game. And I got to do the demo of that, and... It was kind of hard to get excited about it after the demo, so ugh, there's a little problem. And the okay. card, the card quality was not great. Mm-hmm. I'm like, like, I know you've been playing this a lot as a demo, but maybe you should have sleeved it. Uh, <laughs> I, I saw a couple of booths, and I was very surprised they had not sleeved the stuff they had. I guess because I, I kind of left the sort of short demo, not exactly sure how the game really flowed. So maybe it was an instruction issue. You had these like rows of blueprints, and then you would you'd build worlds, and your opponent could attack the blueprints or attack the outpost worlds you had set up, and then you'd win by defeating your opponent's homeworld. But in the scope scope of the demo, it didn't really make a lot of sense why you'd attack the enemy's blueprints. And I think the idea was that you'd wait till they had started building the ship, and then they had a bunch of resources on it, and then you'd try to destroy it before they finished building it. Right. But it was a little. It, vague and, and hard to to get my hands on so i'd want to try that again before i would go get like i it did not make me want to go get it right, right away i gotta have to, to try to get the full one the other one that they had was dragon fire continuing the recent tradition of wizards of the coast not actually making D products just licensing the name out so dragon fire i i got kind of excited when i heard about it like there was there, you've got individual heroes, and it's a cooperative deck-building game, and you can, you know, change heroes as you go through the campaign. And it turns out, you remember Shadowrun Crossfire? Oh, God. It's like Shadowrun Crossfire 2.0, or no. something like that. It's, nope. it's it's better than Crossfire, okay. but it's still very puzzly in the way that you play the game. I mean, Crossfire tried not to be puzzly, but not led by not letting you talk to each other. 
but it was still just puzzly. You're allowed to talk to each other in this. But yeah, it's still very much like, here's the bad guy, I need to play this card, and you need to play that card, and then we do the... Like, I feel like there are some really great cooperative games that come out recently, and historically, I, I don't really like cooperative games that much. I mean, they're nice, but they're not great. And there have been some really great, at least to me, cooperative games, but I think part of that is that there has to be a sense of story... Right. And there has to be like a lot of of sense of flavor to what you're doing, and they need to not just be puzzles. I mean, it's one thing if it's an escape room game, right. where it's literally just we're going to try to figure out this puzzle. But there are some other games where, yeah, it just ends up being the group kind of talking around, like, okay, we do this, and this will happen, and that'll happen, and the other happen, and like these cubes go over there, and that was kind of like what ended up going on with with Dragonfire. There's a campaign mode, but there's there didn't seem to be really a story to it and you level up much much faster than you do in Shadowrun, but it's still you have to play the game over and over and over and over again to really get your character doing interesting different things. So if you liked something like Shadowrun Crossfire, I think this is just flat out better than that. And it's obviously got a, a fantasy theme if you like that that better. But not, uh, you clearly, and I didn't I didn't really like Shadowrun Crossfire. So... I bought it and I hated it. Yeah, yeah you bought it and I think you and Jay and I played it at Gen Con that year. Mm-hmm. Like we played it back in the hotel room or something. Yeah. And well, yeah, it wasn't... We played it and it was like, okay, kind of underwhelming. And then I played it some more and I'm like, oh no, I just straight don't like this game. Just the lack of progression really bothered me because I really expected that in that game. And it just, it does, I mean, it technically does, but not really. That was a weakness that they specifically addressed, right? They, like, in some of the, the dev blogs for, or at least one of the dev blogs for Dragonfire, they talked about that, like, we know that you have to level up faster. Or not level up, but, like, you have to add stuff. That So, but it's still, it's not like you change every game, like, if I'm doing a campaign board game sort of thing, something should change every game. Right. I think, honestly. Well, I don't even necessarily have to have it change every game, but it needs to at least, especially initially, change. Like, well, I think the hard thing, and it's this, it's one of the developers of the same developer, but you went from, you know, you had Pathfinder, which was really the first card game like this that came out, and then Shadowrun came out afterwards, and Shadowrun was just way less adaptive and way less progressive. You know, and a lot of times Pathfinder isn't even progressive. It's just, oh, this thing which gives me a benefit in this one situation, this item, is better than this other one because I'm not really as bad at that situation and this will help gap close some of my stuff. And it's not like you actually got a better card. It's just kind of better for you or you just prefer it. But being able to now include that in your deck, to me, just gives you some kind of progression even if it's sideways progression and that would be fine that game just like your deck always stayed the same and i don't think your deck can stay the same in that style of game anyway that's an old game so it's probably not worth relitigating it but but i mean dragon fire is like i mean it's a deck building game so you start with kind of a generic i mean you you play with four different heroes so the four different like there's four clad like i think you typically would have like one fighter i think Actually, you, you may kind of have to do this because of the way that the monsters work. Like, you've got martial heroes, divine heroes, arcane heroes, and whatever they call the rogues. <laughs> that that kind of group. And so you have one of each of those. So each of those classifications has its sort of starting deck. But 
yeah, I think every game you play, you would have the same starting deck. And I don't, I mean, maybe there were some of the stickers. Now, I obviously was not playing a campaign, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and doing a demo at, at Gen Con, Con, but they didn't say anything about that. And I don't remember looking at the devlobs, anything about there being a bunch of stickers that changed what started in your game. Let's see, other deck building things. So Star Realms, everybody's probably familiar with Star Realms at this point. It's great, two-player, space-themed uh, deck building. I mean, you can play it with more, but the core experience is just two players going at each other and trying to shoot each other while, while adding better cards to their deck. And the, the specific reason I'm mentioning it is because I this was the first time I saw these the uh, scenarios. I think this is their newest one, right. the little scenarios expansion pack. They release a whole bunch of little mini expansion packs. But this one is basically just different rules. <laughs> okay. That, and some of them drastically change the way that the game plays. Like, this game, all of your starting cards have double the effect. Go! <laughs> I walked by their booth and I did not see that for sale. Maybe they sold out, because that was Saturday when, by the time I actually was able to get pat- buy them. They were selling it. It was eight bucks there. I'm assuming that's full. Re- I'm assuming that's the retail price. Oh, you know what? I was I was looking at Hero Realms, not Star Realms, too. So that might be why. I don't think they had anything new for Hero Realms. I think it was basically just what they already had out. Yeah, I, I didn't look at the Hero Realm stuff because I know Hero Realms still has not gotten to the point where it has all of the sort of Kickstarter launch content. Right. I, I think it's just the campaign stuff they're missing. Right. Yeah, so the I think all the class decks are out now. The campaign yeah. deck is not. Well, all, all the all that stuff launched at the same time. It was just campaign deck that I think didn't come out with a launch. Okay, yeah, I but I thought that was part of the wasn't that part of like the stuff that was talked about on the Kickstarter? I don't know, but that's that's coming out. I bought it your, afterwards. I didn't Kickstarter. Yeah, late this year, early next year. Yeah. I don't I don't know. But so the scenarios that wasn't just like here's more cards in your deck. It was. You know, just kind of alternate ways of of playing the game, a whole pack of those. So if you like Star Realms, I think that is definitely worth checking out. I'll note that they... um, Have you ever... Have you had the chance to play Clank? I love Clank. So I didn't even know this was going to be there. Did you see the Renegade Games booth? Yes. So they had... and, And poor Jay, he loves these sorts of things, but... Right, they had Clank in space. Yep. With exclamation points at the end of every word. And I, they sold out of that. I, I think they actually were they divided. Selling it? I, I thought you could yes. like, win a copy, but I didn't think it was actually for sale yet. They were selling it. Well, they sold out super fast. Yes, they did the sort of thing where like they had like a hundred copies on Thursday, and then fifty mm. on Friday, and fifty on Saturday, or something right. like that. And they sold out in like half an hour or less each well, day. That game is thing. great, and Clank in Space just looks straight better because I didn't get a chance to play it, but my friend played it, who I played Clank with, and he he's like, "This is least even better than the original Clank." What was better about it than the original? Because the original Clank's pretty good. So you actually build the board rather than it being one of two static boards. Oh, that's good. So all all the rooms and all the ways you go, instead of it being like one of two static paths or one of four static paths if you have the expansion, you actually build it like every time so it will actually vary stuff up. But a lot of the the concepts and stuff are exactly the same, which is good because it's a really good core game. All it just needs is more variety, I think, for the most part. Like it could probably add a couple more ideas or whatever but this seems like a really good way of doing that yeah well and hopefully that will come out because like just normal old clank was hard to get for a while it was they caught up like about a a few months ago i want to say yeah i think it's pretty much around now but there were there were times when you were like well 
the store has the Clank expansion in stock, but they can't get the base game. <laughs> and then my, my last Friday thing was Pathfinder, because I... I can whine about this more during the the L5R episode, right? Like, I started the L5R tournament, which, after seven hours, had... It was like four Round rounds. Four? Would go. Yeah. Yeah. So, I was 3-1, but I had been waiting to... I really wanted to do Pathfinder's Friday Night at the SAG. Uh, that's the Sagamore Ballroom. So, D&D is kind of, like, gone from... Gen Con, but Pathfinder is there in in massive presence, and they occupy the entire Sagamore Ballroom on the second floor. If you're ever at Gen Con, right, it's it's directly above one side of the Sagamore Ballroom is directly above where all the will call and ticket lines are, and the Sagamore Ballroom like runs like half the distance from there to the to the exhibit hall, give or take, up on the second floor. It's it's huge, so. The Friday for Friday night at the SAG there were I want to say like fourteen hundred or so people playing, and maybe it was only twelve hundred something, but it was about there twelve to fourteen hundred people playing, and they have this a big thing. It starts at eight, it runs for five hours, I think. I think it's a five hour event, and they have Sirenscape comes in and does all of the. They do all the sound for this, so they have these big announcements where when they, like when you get to the sort of place, certain points where it's like the DM would read something or there's some kind of story, they have it up on the screen and then the big sound and, and special effects going on. And everybody's sitting there at their particular table doing their, their individualized things, and that exactly what you're doing depends on the, the character level, right? Because there's different experiences for first or second level characters than ninth or tenth level characters. <laughs> you know, that's the way it works. And you have like mini objectives within each one, and depending on how many tables achieve the different objectives at their game, then it could have like global effects on all the games in the room. Like you have done enough to accomplish the goals of this particular faction, and now that reward can come up and kick in. And it, it was kind of funny. They have a they traditionally have a thing where they they stop in the middle on Friday night because they do the ennies on Friday night, and mm-hmm. the, the president of Paizo will come in and talk about, oh, these are the Ennies we won, and so they did that announcement this time, and they're like, and we won no Ennies whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> Which is amazing. I'd actually been looking, if you, if you look at the history, over the last eight years or so, Pathfinder, had, Pathfinder and Paizo had won Best RPG Publisher, seven of them, or something like that. Oh, okay. Like, geez, man, let go, let, let somebody else have a win. <laughs> I think it's 
They didn't. They didn't get the best publisher. Uh, Tales from the Loop got a couple of Ennies. I wish I had kickstarted that. They were selling it in the Modifius booth. Well, they'll probably get it next year for Path uh, for Starfinder. It sounds like. I hope so. I'm. Anybody can vote. So. Mm-hmm. I do often vote for the bigger stuff. I mean, Pathfinder does a really, Pathfinder does a really good job with almost everything their adventure path stuff which i'm that like that stuff i'm i don't i'm not gonna go buy i'm not gming pathfinder so what would i do with it but even back from the beginning like i did the i hadn't read it before but they they did the super deluxe version of curse of the crimson throne which was their second adventure path after rise of the rune lords it was amazing not only do they they have this system which is Yet another refinement, essentially, of D&D 3.0, which was a great system. But then they've, they've just done such an amazing job with building their world. And that's part of why I, I like Starfinder so much, is it's not only do they have like yet another refinement of this system. I mean, there's more changes for Starfinder. But just starting out from the, the world stuff, you can see the cool things that they're doing with the world right from the core book. One of the problems with sometimes with generic science fiction is that it since it doesn't have the same resonant, there's no real resonant generic science fiction like there is generic fantasy. If you're coming into a science fiction game without that intellectual property, you know, Star Wars or Star Trek or whatever, it's harder to like just look at it and get excited about it. Well, a lot of times they just they kind of usurp something else, not like Semi-generic. Yeah, well, or, or to figure out what's going on. So, like, I mean, like, what they were, like, I don't know, alternity and all this. I I could never get excited about that. Like, that was basically D&D, you know, space D&D when, you know, TSR was doing kind of what Pathfinder is doing now. Like, well, we've got this giant successful fantasy. Let's try to do it with a science fiction setting. There's never been a big generic, big long-term successful generic science fiction game really i mean there are games that have been out there for a long time i think they're still making traveler but i mean traveler's claim to fame was also that you can die during character creation which is stupid i mean <laughs> like that's just dumb i know that that's back when like character creation was random and it was much more about grinding and killer dungeons and all that but why why kill a character during like what's the point of that just to 
be as frustrating as humanly possible. Anyhow. I feel like the entire system was missing the point, the system. <laughs> Let's make this as accurate a simulation as possible. That's not why anybody's playing roleplay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's there's always a balance between it, the, the simulation aspect is relevant in that mm-hmm. people kind of have ideas about how the universe works and that if you're not meshing with those ideas, then people kind of don't understand it. Even on basic things like how far is it that someone can jump? Or, uh, I don't know. I had a great time with the Friday Night at the SAG. It would be even better if you actually were, which I was not, like if you were going with a group and you actually could fill up the full six tables with basically your role-playing buddies. Because that would be fun. I mean, because let's, Let's let's be serious here. Friday Night at the SAG is primarily role-playing with an R-O-L-L, not an R-O-L-E. It's like a one-shot sort of thing, and it's there's thinking, and there's puzzling, and there's there's combat. There's not a lot of social... You know, there's there, there's a little bit, but you know, it's it's not a big, like, everybody gets together and then has their characters chat to get to know each other and stuff. But if you're going in with a group of people who you already have that with... That would be re- really cool. So I had, I did this on Friday night. I did it again on Saturday. They have a big Gen Con exclusive thing on Friday night. And then on Saturday, they repeated the thing. They, it was a repeat, I think, of the thing they did at Origins, which is a similar kind of thing. I had the real ticket for Friday night. I hadn't intended to do it on Saturday, but I had so much fun on Friday that I wanted to do it. So I, it was sold out, of course. So I showed up with my my generics, but then there was a table of five people going around going like, we need a rogue, we need a rogue or a bard, somebody who's got skills, anybody? And I'm like, yes, yes, give me the real ticket, I'll play. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I was, I'm like, I'm far enough in front in line, I don't think this is going to be an issue, but... ...and addresses the crowd in a booming voice. Pathfinders, I regret interrupting the festivities, but we have something of a situation... Approximately 20 minutes ago, unknown forces invaded the Blackrose Museum. Fortunately for everyone involved, the Torch Fairy is about cooperation and helping our colleagues. So, let's think of this less as an inconvenience, and more as an opportunity to practice what we preach. The Elf Nigel exhales sharply and speaks. Now, Ambrose... I've spent a king's ransom fortifying a museum from all sorts of invaders. Sentinels from the Golem Wars, magical wards from the Arcanomarium, even contracts for guard beasts, both magical and mundane, spared no expense. I didn't want to come here, but I've got no choice. Nelson's forced smile cracks slightly, showing his annoyance. Out with it, Nigel. Get to the point. Someone broke into my museum and set off the magical protections. I was preserving priceless, shining crusade pieces for our new exhibit when the first alarm sounded. I sent for the district guards, and I went to investigate. But by the time I arrived, the thieves had already locked themselves in my study. They somehow caused the shiny crusade relics to fly around the museum and attack my sentinels. Everything's gone haywire! The magical traps started to target me! The sentinels were not responding to my demands, and... Dalson holds out a hand to study the increasingly agitated elf. The last you knew, the thieves were still in your study? Nigel nods. Very well. Pathfinders, 
The Seeker should prepare to teleport directly into the Black Rose study. That won't work, Nigel interrupts. The study is magically sealed. After that dreadful Numerian exhibit, I turned it into a magical safe room. The robbers must have figured out how to activate it. No one can get in or out while the wards hold. I can work on breaking the ward, but meanwhile my sentinels are smashing up the collection. Some of those priceless relics are on loan from your own society lodges, so helping me is really helping yourselves. Fine! Amber Spellson takes a deep breath and then turns to the assembled Pathfinders. Pathfinders, go to the Black Rose Museum, secure any relics you can, disable the security systems, and apprehend the looters if possible. Stay safe. Tell me that you are Meta of the Twinhorn Following. Is that correct? Yes. I speak for the following. Meta declares at Nigel Alden. I have come to reclaim what is rightfully ours. His agents stole our most sacred realm after we refused to sell it. We have traveled through dangerous lands to claim it back, and still he refused. My agents claim they bought it. Nigel protests. I'm not about to give it to you just because you stomp into my office demanding priceless relics. <laughs> Nigel, let us listen to her story and decide how to proceed. Mayor, tell us about this problem. Why is it so important to you? Mayor takes a deep breath. Over 900 years ago, a powerful warrior named Bora came into our camp. She spoke of an angel named Vildeus who guided her up for its great dark evil she called Ashimka. Several of our scouts had recently disappeared, later found ripped into pieces. The elders insisted that we help banish this evil and ensure the safety of our following. They laid a trap for the evil spirit, luring it to our sacred standing stone on the winter solstice. There, Evora and the great dark evil, Ishimka, fought a mighty battle that raged for hours. Just as the night was darkest, Evora dealt Ishimka a telling blow, digging her dagger deep into its blood. The creature tried to escape, but it only snapped off the blade and then collapsed on the center stone. The elders finished their ritual and destroyed it completely. Evora rested with us for the winter before departing to eradicate more evil from the world, but not before leaving us the hilt of her weapon. Hayden draws a bundle of bloody cloth from her bag, then unwraps it to reveal a small hilt with a bloody fragment of black metal. She told us to bring the hilt back to the standing stone every year at the winter solstice to keep evil away. We've had to travel for so long to retrieve the hilt. I'm afraid we won't make it back in time for the solstice. Please, let me leave now. Ambrose Valsin contemplates Meta's story for a moment, then nods, his brow firm. Nigel! You should have sent for the Black Rose agents who 
untamed world and hear what they have to say. Mena, I'm going to send you as many Pathfinder agents as you deem necessary to travel with you and your followers. I want to ensure we return this relic to its proper place. Nigel starts to protest, but Balsam cuts him off. Nigel, you wanted my help. You're getting it. I'm helping you fix a mistake your agents made. As for your museum... Balsam takes a moment to survey the heavily damaged museum. I'm told most of the damage was done by your own security, not Meta and her followers. Pathfinders, prepare to head north to the realm of the Manifolds. So on both Friday night and Saturday night, I got back to my hotel at about 2, which is not really unusual for Gen Con in general, but it's very unusual for me. I get up pretty early, and I have a hard time being, you know, peppy and full of life until midnight or something. And it was not really until about midnight that I even started feeling tired when I was at either of these Pathfinder things, despite having, I mean, I slept like, like maybe five hours a night tops. It was just so much fun. It was, it was great. I don't, I'm never going to be able to churn up the time to like go to a weekly Pathfinder society thing and a weekly Starfinder society thing and going and do L5R this and doing a board game meeting up meet up. Cause like I said, you know, I'm I'm waiting. I'm waiting until the kids move out and I uh, retire. I think for that, I think that's when I get to do those things. Any second now, right? No, it's a lot of seconds. It is a lot of seconds. I I think I have 20 years, give or take, until all of those those buttons are hit. Hopefully, the the kids should be out of the house before then. I don't know. What I keep pushing and I never succeed on is interim retirement. What I'd like to do is retire for 10 years now while my kids are younger and then work 10 years longer later when they're gone. But I, I, uh, nobody seems to want to go for that. I don't understand. I don't know why someone doesn't want to just cut me a check for not working for the next decade in the assumption that I will still be alive (laughs) (laughs) and able to work for them, you know, for an extra 10 years from 20 to 30 years from now. Oh well, such is the, the 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 cycle of life, I guess. But it was it was great. I mean, I I'm not going to uh, bore everyone with the uh, tedium of what exactly when all the things. Although I I will point out the thing that I had a a table on Friday night, and I I was playing a halfling, which I almost never do. More like a humans and elves from like generic fantasy things, and dwarves are right out. And we, I was at a table where there was one normal-sized character. It was like all gnomes and halflings and dwarves. I don't... We were like the slowest, smallest party ever assembled, I swear. Okay. It, was, it, it made a difference. The encumbrance when you're, like, not a strength 18 fighter and you're small, you really have to watch the weight. Anyhow. But I was... I don't know. I wanted to play something different so that was the end of my friday was or the end of my friday on on saturday or something like that 
And then Saturday's my big, like, do a bunch of different things days. So did you have, what else did you hit on your Saturday other than the Fantasy Flayed booth? Well, the previous day, the thing I forgot to say, I, I did go home to Broken Token and got, like, four other different things, especially their Terraforming Mars pack. Oh, man, I love those things. There's a lot of board games that are just a box, and those things not only help organize them, it actually makes it easier to, like, set up and get going. And for something like Terraforming Mars, which takes a couple hours anyways, it's it's really nice. So I went ahead and swung by and got all of those because I was like, oh, they're all going to be together rather than me having to try and order through a store or whatever. So let me go ahead and get them. I tried to get Ex Libris, but that was very foolish because it was Saturday and that thing had sold out <laughs> while I was in line for L5R. <laughs> yeah. That yeah. thing sold out real hard, real fast. I did pick up uh, my copy of Mansions of Madness. Mountains of which Madness. I, Mountains of Madness, you're right. Sorry, yeah, not Mansions, that's the other one. Yeah, so I got Mountains of Madness. I have played that since, and it is basically exactly as advertised. It's, I think it's a lot of fun. Mansions of Madness was really good. I did, I haven't played it so you mean Mountains? Ma- yes, dang it. Ma- <laughs> Mansions of Madness is really good. Mountains of Madness was, yes. was good. I have not gotten to yes. play it after Gen Con yet. But yeah, like the madness things, again, right, you're taking the normal cooperative thing and and just throwing a wrench in it. It's not, I guess it's different from the sort of things I'm often looking for in a in a cooperative game, but just yeah. the strange little habits, like I'm like, oh, my madness is I have to high five everybody before we can talk about what we're doing. I did originally get <laughs> one and I'm like, can we not do this one and the convention environment? And it was like, you're not allowed to talk unless you're touching someone else's face. And I'm like, let's not do that at the de- at the convention <laughs> with these strangers. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I will say, so for on the whole, I just really love that game. And part of it is that it turns a lot of the weaknesses of co-op games into strengths in a lot of ways. Because basically the whole thing is that right, you have to decide where you want to go. And somebody is like the first player and the first player passes. And the first player basically gets to make all of the decisions for the most part, other than what cards you add in. Everybody's got a hand of cards. The cards are essentially two to through six of four different suits. Whenever you flip a tile, whenever you move there, it will have requirements. And you want to meet both of them, but you don't t- and each one has a reward. You only need to hit one to get the reward, but if, if for each one you don't hit, you have to take a penalty, which are very bad. And the two requirements will be like either an exact number or a range of two of the different suits. There's like 30 seconds where you can talk about what you need to add and what everybody has in their hand. And unlike other co-op games, you can actually explicitly say, I have a three of this, a four of this. You can't show anybody, but you can explicitly say what you have. And you can't talk about it any other time in the game, because it would ruin the game if you could. But the madnesses make it so that frequently it's very hard to discuss what you have and what what you are able to do. But you have a leadership resource, which if you run out of it permanently, that's the end of the game. Also, you need to you can shuffle a deck, but then you get all your leadership back and you have to remove one permanently. So timing that can be very important because if you don't have a discard and you get a heal as a reward to get rid of one of the madness or the injuries, which is one of the ways that you lose the game, like you basically can succeed and get no reward from it. And because not only are they dead cards, you actually need more relics than you have madnesses or injuries to actually be able to win, even if you succeed in surviving off the mountain. 
similar to your experience, we had a game where my friend, the card was that he had to sit on the ground the entire time we were talking about, and we were sitting around a table, he's like, look, I just, physically, I can't do this, because my legs will go to sleep, and I just can't do it every time. I'm just not, you know, I'm not fit enough to be able to do that. So we, you know, he just drew a new card, but thankfully there's like a ton of madnesses, and even a couple that you can write in yourself. Yeah, when some of them, like, they would be fine normally, they just don't work, or actually, well, it some of them depends on the play environment. Like, there's one that's like you have to stand ten feet away from the table, or something mm-hmm. like that, which really does not work at Gen Con. But it also right. probably would not work if you were at a meetup with other groups because right. you kind of have to talk really loudly for everyone to be able to hear you. But it would work just fine yep. if you're playing with a group at somebody's house. Yep. Well, so we just kept taking madnesses because we would get annoyed by the madnesses we had. We we played a four player game. We just kept increasing the madnesses that we had because we're like, okay, well, this is really almost like no punishment, but you can't advance it past a three. When If you have like a level one, you get it replaced with a level two when you get a new madness. Yeah. And the same thing when you get to level three. But once you get to level three, you can't do it anymore. Otherwise, you have to roll a die, and the die is basically always bad, but it can be less bad than just taking increasing a madness. And we ran into that at the end of the game because we all three had madnesses. The items that you want that actually will let you win the game – force you to increase your madness. And if you can't increase your, increase your madness, if nobody can increase their madness, you actually have to get rid of leadership, and then you're probably... That's what happened in the end. We actually reached the summit, the madness thing. We had three different things. We had all kinds of crazy madnesses that we had to deal with. The person who was uh, the leader had had the ability to be able to shut off madnesses like not available to him because of the previous thing that he had gotten. And we actually hit all three of the objectives. And I was like, how on earth did we manage this? But we managed it. And then we had to take three. Ma- uh, the reward was, because we didn't look at the reward, the reward was three of the pieces of information that we needed, which is great. Except for we're all level three, and then that shredded the rest of our leadership, and we lost. <laughs> <laughs> we actually succeeded and lost. It was well, We could have just missed one of them and probably been fine. I, I really like that game. It, it's really, really good. And none of us felt bad about losing. Like, we all just had a, a really fun time. Although I do feel bad for my one friend who, it was their turn to be leader, said three words, and then two of us screamed and immediately stopped talking. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well. Was, he was like, he was very shaken about what it, like, he was so confused. Because <laughs> your madness had a trigger for... Right, yeah, it was, uh, it was one word, and the third word he said was that word, so... So I did that, and the, really the only – I did not get around – because I bought a bunch. I bought two combo packs, Phase 2 and Phase 3 of Rage at the uh, – I can't remember their name, but at the old card game reseller booth. There's one There's one reseller booth that has, like, a ton of old card games that they actually have at fairly decent prices, and they never put anything up on eBay. So they have – you know, in me, that's, that's a lot of my heart is all those old card games. I love getting starters and stuff from them. But the only other thing I really played was uh, Final War, which I believe is the developers uh, Australian. I can't I can't remember actually what the name of the developer. Oh, it's like Game Labs, I think. And it's an interesting game where you each have a leader. There's like three different factions. You each have a leader. You start with a hen, and then you just put down everything you can. You have like regular monsters. You have heroes, which go in the same row as your your main hero. And then you have a side deck where you essentially pull stuff from, and they either go into your hand or you flip it, and it's an event, and something happens. 
So it'll be like a wandering monster and you have to fight that wandering monster or it'll be a mercenary and you can hire him. But if you don't hire him, your opponent can hire him. If they don't hire him, it goes off to the side. But then if you pull a monster, he'll join the monster because he's like, well, screw waiting to get paid. I'm just going to join this monster and raid you. And then eventually you'll you'll flip a final war. And in that case, it kind of reminds me of Warlord because it's a D12 to actually be able to hit. And instead of doing like a plus to hit and a AC, it's just your guy has an attack rating. Your person has an attack rating and you just need to roll and either be equal to or under whatever their uh, value is to be able to hit them. And then they'll have a certain number of hit points or whatever. And you can't attack their main character until there's no other characters on the board. And then the way to win is just to knock out their main character. And I was really impressed by it, so I ended up picking it up after our demo. I think it's Australian because everybody in that booth had an Australian accent. Like, this is very <laughs> impressive if you guys all came up from Australia for for Gen Con. I will stop complaining about my eight-hour ride in the back of a truck. <laughs> but um, that that was pretty much most of my Gen Con. I don't really think there was too much other than that. Of course... A big hole there is L5R because it was it was a very big hole. But yeah, yeah, that shall be next episode. Yep. So I had a bunch of little things on uh, Saturday, and it's possible I've already shoved some of them into the prior discussions. Let's see. I I played Radiant Offline Battle Arena. Oh, you played Spooky Skin. Yes, I'll say yes. And disclosure: this is well. It's now you say Spooky, so that's Robert Denton. So a couple of old L5R guys. Robert Denton and Dan Deneen are involved in this. Neither of them is the designer. Dan is sort of like the, I, th- I think, like is sort of like the organized play guy. And Spooky is, I don't know, marketing and graphic design and all sorts of other things. And it's it's going to like kickstart later this year or early next year. But it's, right, it's Radiant Offline Battle Arena. It's supposed to play like a, one of these MOBA games, which t- to be clear, I've never played, literally never played. So I thought you had played Heroes. No. Heroes of the Storm. No. Oh, I guess not. No. I uh, Hearthstone. It just must be Hearthstone. Yeah, that's probably what it is. Yes, I've, I've played Hearthstone. That's that's it over there. So, I mean, so I, my my coming at this, I can tell you nothing about how it compares to an actual one. But, right, you've got, you, you have three temples that you're defending, and that's, right, the three lanes. And when the third one gets broken, then your deity comes out, and then you lose if your deity gets defeated. And your deck is made up of, you choose three heroes to be representing you and each of those heroes comes with a chunk of cards so your deck is the assigned cards for those three heroes all shuffled together so you're trying to defeat your opponent's heroes and bust your opponent's temples and then defeat their deity before they do that to you it was really fun and it played really differently than stuff that i had played before maybe it plays exactly like every online moba does I i don't know and there were a couple of things going on. You're, you can generate a little bit of power, which eventually lets you improve your guys. Like, you can level them up. There was a really good system with attacking, where you could either attack, you could try to hit the temple, or you could try to hit one of the other guys, and then they could try to defend. And so every place in there, you've got decisions to be made about what's the right thing to attack. Do you want to go straight for the temple, or do you want to try to hit your opponents? Your opponent's heroes and is defending the right thing because defending, attacking and defending anything that commits your character bows them, taps them, whatever. Now they kind of can't hit back when they're defending, but then when you're fighting, you can you which the the main thing you do with the cards in your deck is clash with them, which is like play each of you plays one of them face down to fight and it adds more attack and more defense and then it can have other 
funky abilities and you have to decide how to to balance your three guys there's basically dps characters and characters that generate the power that lets you upgrade and then characters who are defensive i think the default is to have one of each but you don't necessarily have to do that and they have a whole organized play plan for this thing which will never be relevant to my life well no i know i I, that's why i'm laughing yeah i Now, the nice thing for the organized play for them is like, it's just if you have the stuff, that's it. It's not in-depth customization. There's not chasing packs. If it does well enough, they would release additional things with other characters. But, I mean, they were talking about doing things like draft tournaments, basically, where you'd, one player would just break out their set and then you'd take turns picking. Like, I pick a character, you pick a character. And then each of us can, like, ban a character. Yeah, they had one of those at Gen Con. Yeah, so I did that on on Saturday in the hall, and that was that was really fun. It was really good. I definitely would recommend looking at that when that comes to Kickstarter. And they told me more precisely. I'm going to guess it was later this year. I don't think it was next year, but so later this year. But that's Radiant Offline Battle Arena. Yeah, I, I wanted to go get their demo, but... I really wasn't able to until Saturday, and then I was looking at their tweet Thursday about where they were, and they had moved locations on Saturday, and I just did not, had not seen that, so I missed them. Uh. Hey, this is Robert Denton, Spooky Electric, from Gen Con, where I'm having the time of my life. Uh, played in the L5R tournament and had a fantastic time, and uh, got really, really far without earning it. And, uh, <laughs> well, you know, I... Uh, Right now, I'm demoing our new game, uh, Radiant Online Battle Arena. Uh, if you have a chance, uh, wherever you're at, uh, pull the car to the side of the road and go to at Radiant OBA on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or InstaSlam, or uh, Twitter, or uh, Super Twitter, or Secret Twitter, or any other place where you can put those letters in in that order. Uh, I guess that's basically it. Except that I'm also having a fantastic time talking to phone. <laughs> oh, and to to clarify, the the we who is the we that is coming out with this? It's not Fantasy Flight. No, this no, this is uh, Legend Forge, uh, which is a own company that does Radiant uh, by itself. Uh, we are partnered with uh, AEG and looking forward to bringing you a Kickstarter in late January, early uh, February. Hopefully, all goes well. So let's see what else did I, I do. I looked at the meta arcade slash Tunnels and Trolls booth. So Tunnels and Trolls is, you'll tell where its name came from when you hear that it was like the second fantasy role-playing game. So it was like, hey, this D&D thing is big, and so let's make Tunnels and Trolls, I guess. I've never played Tunnels and Trolls, and I still don't know anything about like the physical game, but this meta arcade Tunnels and Trolls adventures is an app and at its basics it's kind of like one of these choose your own adventure lone wolf book app sort of things except using the tunnels and trolls role-playing game mechanics for going through and making decisions you know and then maybe you die and maybe you lose but it also that's those are the same thing maybe you die maybe you win but they also have a really easy to use adventure creator for it essentially like you can just pull up this whole environment it has a very nice visual flow chart 
it goes from this and then lines to what the decision paths are depending on if they make this decision or that decision or if they win the fight or lose the fight or make their saving throw or not all those those different things and i thought that that was was really good and you have the ability to pull in all of the like you've got they've got all the art assets that are in there and all of the sound assets that are in there and eventually i think there's going to be the ability for people to add more to create their own art or create their own sounds and it all just goes in and now anybody later on who's making an adventure can pull from all of that they're talking about theoretically like somebody could do this professionally if it got big enough by creating assets that other people use i don't know what the chances of that actually happening are but you can play the app for free i think you can pay and get rid of the ads but if you essentially anytime you anytime someone does an adventure you make or uses or an adventure that is being played uses your sound or your art you get some cut of whatever the minuscule advertising revenue is like I said, I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know what the chances are that anybody will ever make any real money off of you know being a content creator for that. But it was just so easy to make the adventures that I thought that there was a lot of room to to play with there. Whether or not it expands beyond this old school tunnels and trolls milieu, I don't know how that's going to go. But uh, I thought there was a lot of potential in the the meta arcades, the setup that Meta Arcade had made there. I went over to the USAopoly booth. And if you were at Gen Con last year, the the thing that sold out the most spectacularly every day, like, right, Seafall had its big thing on Thursday, but USAopoly had the Harry Potter game. And it turns out that uh, Harry Potter has some broad popularity. Who knew? So they had the Harry Potter Hogwarts Battle game last year. This year, they were releasing an expansion to it. Now, I own the game, and I... Didn't really feel the need to demo the expansion, but they had some promo cards, so I wanted to sort of go over to their booth. And instead of demoing that, it's like a big monster box. I think it's based on the, the most recent movie. But instead, I demoed a Super Mario Brothers game? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They have two things. They have a Super Mario Brothers game, and they have a Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 game. And the core of them is the same, the Guardians of the Galaxy one as far as I, I can tell, is just adds some, like, it adds player powers and a little bit more complexity. So, I guess the, the Mario Brothers game is pretty light, so unless you're going for one theme or the other, if you're more of a gamer gamer, you might like the Guardians of the Galaxy one better. Because it's a, it's a pretty straightforward, like, you can play with a lot of people. I think it supports up to eight out of the little tiny box for the Super Mario Brothers. And... Everybody starts with two lives, and at the end of every round, someone will lose one of those lives. The, the core thing is very basic. It's you're going to get one level card, and that's going to have a number on it, and it's going to have a number of coins on it. And at the end, whoever has the lowest number, or the players who have the lowest number if there's a tie, will all lose a life. So then the gameplay is then about manipulating that. You look at your card and you have to decide whether or not to pass it to the player on your left and what the chances, you know, what the odds are that you'll have there. There are ways that you can draw cards so you can have things that modify the numbers. It's definitely light, but it was pretty fun. It would be nice if you could somehow get sound effects in it. So like every time you played a card, it did like a little coin sound coming up or, or something. Someone but just have to have a soundboard. Yes. You have to like basically pay someone to do the sound for your game. 
No, I just mean whenever you play it, somebody's going to have to pull up a soundboard and just hit the buttons whenever somebody plays the appropriate event. Well, yes, but that person's probably going to have a lot less fun than everybody else is. <laughs> this is like, because you've turned playing the game into their into work. It's a very light game. It's not like you're setting this up and you're going to do it for hours. And regardless, it was supposed. I was, I was trying to be facetious. It's like a twenty dollar box game. You know, nobody's. Right, uh, right. <laughs> not, it doesn't go with its own sound effects. But and, and like I said, I don't. I don't know exactly what's different about Guardians of the Galaxy except it's got player powers. So it's very light. I could see that being fun. I mean, I. I, I like it better than a lot of the social deduction games that are out there, so I'd, I'd rather do that as a, a party game. Let's see, I, I have a couple more things before I go into just throwing you to interviews. So, I bought Codenames Duet. That's fun. It's a better two-player experience than normal Codenames with the alternate rules, which is not surprising since they designed it to do that. You know, right? If you if you played... I'm not going to explain the concept of Codenames, but if you played Codenames before in duet you put out one card and each of you is looking at one side and so you're giving the other player clues about what's on your side and they're giving you clues about what's on their side and so you both have to to do well enough and then you can do different challenges for you know how many tries you have and how many times you can miss i was a little miffed because there was a promo with purchase at gen con and like I don't mean like kind of who cares in in some ways like there are a I've already got a giant pile of code names words and pictures so it's not like I really need more but the person before me in line got the promo pack and then I bought the game and then I said well what about the promo pack she's like oh were you a pre-order no she's like well then we're out of them and I feel like if you had advertised you get a promo with the purchase you should probably mention before for the person has paid that you don't have the promos anymore? Yeah, that's okay. So I was a little miffed about that, and I bought that for Katie. I liked uh, for my, my wife. She likes code names. I like to try to get good two-player games that we both like, <laughs> so we mm-hmm. have stuff to play. So I, it's not that I wouldn't have bought it if they had told me that they didn't have the promo, but... You would think they could at least mail it to you. Well, that's that would really ratchet up their cost. People run out of promotional items all the time. Sure. But, you know, you say that you've run out of the promotional item. Because they certainly... And I'm. it's kind of weird that they ran out of the promotional stuff, because it's... Like, the game just came out, and they had a bajillion copies of the game. I don't know why they didn't bring as many copies of the promo item that was being sold, that was coming with the game, as they brought out the game. I don't know. But again, the main thing is the non-communication or the communication after you already have my money. Yeah. Eh, I don't know. So good game, but eh, a little irritating about that. So I also ventured over into the uh, near the miniatures painting land, uh, which is something I normally don't do because they had the, the Shapeways booth shut up. Did you see this? Uh, did you see the picture of the, the, the Kraken die that I put up on the... The Twitter feed, it's like a D20 yes. with like all these tentacles coming out of yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know that that's necessarily, you know, practical as a die, but they do 3D printing. A lot of it is of like miniatures customization bits that does not function in my existence. But they also had a, a lot of like almost toy-like things that you could do. And then a lot of these dice and that most of the stuff is 3D printed. The dice themselves aren't actually 3D printed. 
you use the 3D printer to create a mold for the die, and then they cast the metal dice out of the, the 3D printed mold. They had a bunch of funky dice, like a die with a, a kind of almost cylindrical pyramidal die. Would have, like, you'd roll the die and it had a little thing in the middle that clattered around and then landed on what the appropriate spot was. There was a... And again, this is more of a conversation piece maybe than a, a practical die, but there was a die that had a maze that went from like one to six all the different ways. It turns out that that was the correct way to little solve this little pathing maze. So I, I went up there and like the sweet spot for them is probably the miniature stuff, which is why they were set up near the painting area. An area that always flabbergasts me, by the way. I could spend a day and have the most garbagey paint thing ever on a miniature and then these speed painting people will be like at it for 10 minutes and be like oh my gosh what you i don't know something i'm terrible at terrible at i am also terrible at it so you're not alone i don't know so what i'm gonna do now is throw the audio to interviews and you should hear not necessarily in this order Modiphius, Sirenscape, Dyes, Monolith Mythic, and Game on Tabletop. And I I was going to do some sort of intro to each of those, but I'm not going to because I, I see that our recording time is already very long. So I'm just going to toss it to those, and then Mike and I will be waiting for you on the other side. I'm here at Gen Con with the, at the Modiphius Entertainment booth with Chris Birch, uh, who we also talked to last year. How are you doing, Chris? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Not too bad considering it's uh, several days into a mental convention. Well, yeah, I mean, you don't have your full breakdown for another 24 hours, right? Uh, yeah, God, we, uh, it's end of, end of play Sunday, so uh, another... I don't know how many hours. <laughs> yeah, you, 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 you got about 26. But I think yeah. usually at 24, 2 on Sunday, I think everyone who's been working all weekend is usually kind of a zombie at that point. Yeah, right? you just have to keep going until the last box is sealed and on the pallet. So, um. yeah. That's right, yeah, because I, I get kicked out of here at 4, and then you have to stay and clean up your booth. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, we don't get to walk away just then. <laughs> I wish, I wish that would be amazing, but uh, it's, yeah, it's cool, you know. Yeah. But uh, I know that uh, t- too busy is better than not busy enough, and I know that you guys have been busy with uh, the Star Trek uh, Adventures yeah. role-playing yeah. game. Yeah, that's. I mean, it's been flying out. It's been people running. We had like 150 odd uh, demos here at the the show, demo table seats, and uh, the game's been flying out. It's been really, really popular. So, I mean, it's just obviously um, everyone get, gets a real warm, fuzzy feeling from Star Trek. And uh, you know, it's the first um, f- uh, first new version of Star Trek role playing in like about eight years. Um, it's the fourth role playing game, so we've had a lot of great games to follow, and we've gone for a bit more of a personal approach. So rather than having the kind of dry timeline and about Starfleet, we've got a lot of sidebars. The entire timeline chapter is just sidebars of messages between. Romulan captains and Federation officers and um, Vulcan ambassadors all talking about these various key events in the timeline. Um, but so you get their personal views about it. So it's, it's a completely different approach to it. And it's, a, it's based on our 2D20 system that you've seen in Conan and Infinity and uh, John Carter and uh, Mutant Chronicles. So it's, a, it's got a bit of a narrative feel to it and uh, it's very cinematic. Yeah, and I know uh, I've I've looked at the book, and I know I thought that it was good that you you used your D twenty system, but 
the, the D20 and like Mutant Chronicles has some really big differences from the D20 in, in yeah, Star Trek. Yeah. We don't just do a copy paste and change the names. It's you know we change the number of stats sometimes. Different you know it's a different skill structure. Uh, you know we the same concept is still there that you roll two twenty sided dice against your your total. Whether it's your um, in Star Trek that's your attribute and your discipline. Um, and uh, but but we kind of reflavor it, rewrite it. So it feels like Star Trek, or it feels like Conan. You know, Conan is more brutal, and it's about melee combat. Star Trek is about kind of people and uh, dilemmas and, uh, you know, engineering feats and exploration and stuff. So, you know, I thought you guys did a, a really good job with the, the system for... Uh, let's say techno babble, for lack of a better yeah. word, for stellar phenomena or dealing with some engineering malfunction that really we, as players, of course, have no earthly clue what's going on with the warp drive. Yeah, that's right. You don't want it to be too techy because Star Trek isn't very. It, you get the techno babble, but you don't get really deep into the technology. It's about the people fixing it or the think, cool things they can do to get around the problem. And it's it's about relationships as well. It's about moral dilemmas. It's about you know vast disasters unfolding and, and what they do to fix things, you know. Now, you, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's a rule book somewhere that says you're not allowed to release a major RPG anymore without a bunch of accessories and stuff to come out <laughs> along with it. So what do you guys have coming for Star Trek Adventures this year? Well, we've got the three dice set, so uh, Command, Operations, and Sciences in the different colors. But you, know, you can use your normal dice. It's, it's obviously nice to have the, uh, the official ones. But uh, we've also got a, big, a gigantic GM screen uh, that's a big piece of art. We've got uh, floor tiles of uh, Starfleet ships, of Klingon ships, Romulan ships... Uh, Borg ships. Um, they've been art directed by Rick Sternbach, who is the technical director on Next Generation, and uh, he, he did all the technical manuals. Uh, we've got a range of miniatures. So if you like using minis with your role playing, you've got Romulans, Klingons, the original series crew, the um, uh, TNG crew. You've got uh, Borg coming, a whole set of villains, different villains like Khan, Lacutus of Borg, Law. Um, you've got um, a, a generic uh, Starfleet away team, uh, and they go with they go with the floor tiles. And we've also got a free downloadable um, uh, version of the RPG system that's been stripped down, so you can play quick battles with it as well. So if you just want to play a quick away team game, you know, with the Klingons boarding a Federation ship, you can do that. So uh, it's a lot of fun. We've got the gigantic ball cube. That's a huge collector's piece with a. Um, holographic numbering from 1 to 1701 funny enough <laughs> and it comes, with, it, it comes with the collector's edition book all the dice all the miniatures the character sheets the counters the all the dice sets and, uh, it's, uh, and, and all the PDFs of the books we're doing over the next year so it's a really big exclusive bundle that's on our web store so um, uh, I mean it's been amazing uh, we've got an adventure book called These Are The Voyages coming and then over the next year we've got Several, uh, four quadrant books like Beta Quadrant, Alpha Quadrant, Gamma Quadrant, and such a Delta Quadrant. We've got um, uh, Command Operations and Sciences Division books, which are resources for the GM and the players, like more in-depth life paths, more gear, more ships, advice for the GM and players on how to play those roles uh, better, how to make sure those people playing those roles have a really awesome time. And, you know, stuff about giant entities and Q and 
Vija and uh, Section 31 and all the kind of unusual stuff that you get in Star Trek 2. Okay, now as I remember, if I recall correctly, in the core book, there's a, a reference out to like a maybe like a Romulan book and a Klingon book for oh, yeah, playing those are, characters. We, we are doing a Klingon book that's coming up uh, later next year, so that will be a, if you just want to rock around in a in a Klingon ship, there's a bunch of Klingons kicking around the galaxy fighting for honor, then you can do that. And um, the quadrant books include more uh, Starfleet races to play, as and there's already eight in the book. Uh, but it also includes non-Starfleet races, so if you, because maybe you don't want to play a Starfleet character. So that's the Quadrant books will expand those options. Well, and of course, Starfleet has a program that lets non-Federation species sometimes enter Starfleet. Yeah. So you can always just slip that random yeah, Ferengi into your ship. Worf is a good uh, good example of how you do that. So yeah. yeah, I think I said that on my review. It's the Klingon book. Let's face it, it's for the GM and the guy who wants to play Worf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> it's going to be a lot of fun, yeah. Okay. Uh, now, I'm, I'm, the answer may be no, because I know you've spent a ton of time on Star Trek Adventures. Do you Have you had any anything else not Star Trek new come out recently? Well, we've got Fallout, Wasteland Warfare, which is a big miniatures game that's um, going on pre-order in a couple of weeks. And so that's been a big project for the last year we've been working on. And Tales from the Loop has just come out, which is the kind of uh, Stranger Things-inspired RPG where you're kind of kids on bikes in the 80s, uh, fighting monsters and um, doing your homework. Uh, so that, kind of, that's been our kind of big project we've been building up to. Okay, yeah, I, I saw Tales from the Loop in here with its multiple uh, gold ennies yeah, over there. There was five gold ennies, which is incredible. Uh, yeah, apparently I should have backed it when it was on Kickstarter. <laughs> yeah, they did. I mean, we're literally down to our last stock today. It's been, it's just flown out and uh, just people love it. It's just really hit that right moment in time. Because uh, I guess it kind of reminds you of being a kid and playing D&D and uh, that kind of vibe of being kids in the 80s. And uh, it's obviously with the show, the Stranger Things show on, is a huge inspiration. And, and Simon Stallenhag's artwork is very evocative you know of that time so it's really good okay thanks for talking to us Chris yeah, no worries thanks a lot cheers uh, it's Saturday afternoon here at Gen Con I am in the the dyes booth and I'm gonna I'll tell you in advance I I tried to get them to confirm to make sure that I understood what their product was before I asked them about it but they apparently want to take the risk of me embarrassing myself on my own show so let, let's see how I can can do this now it, in in there are, in my experience, a lot of gamers who never want to play a game unless they have uh, watched a video or they are playing with someone who has already played and can sit down and spend an hour teaching them how to play this game. Uh, and this can cause problems, especially if, if you're in a group, as some of mine are, where you tend to play a, a new game every single different week. And uh, Dized is an app that is attempting to address that problem where... You have people who insist on being, uh, who have to be taught the game, but refuse to actually sit down and watch a video before they show up on Friday night gaming session. So how, do, do I have that right? You're, that's the problem you're trying to address. That is absolutely correct. And so I'm Yoni. I'm the CEO and uh, co-founder of Diced. And right now we've been around for three and a half years and we've figured out what it is that we actually need to do with board games because we always wanted to do something with the digital aspect of board games. But now that we've talked with industry operators and, and players, we realized, okay, we need to solve the rulebook issue. 
and this is also a personal issue for us. Uh, we want to play games. We don't want to study games. But the company that our company name is Play More Games, and uh, Dice is the product that we're doing. So it's an app that is the friend at the table who knows the game inside out and teaches you how to play while you play. So you don't need to go uh, through the rule book or watch the video. You can just show up to a game night fire up dice on the table, open up the game box, and it takes you by hand, uh, teaches you or shows you how to set up the game, and then you go into the game, and it teaches you the game step by step. And through player input, it even knows what's going on in the game when you're playing, which allows the app to know which rules you do need to, do need to know right now in order to advance in the game, and which rules uh, can be taught to you later on. At some point, it will that tell you that congratulations, now you know everything about the game, and it will take you to a rule lookup tool where you can either search uh, certain rules to the game, or the cool thing is you can ask questions and get immediate answers to your, your, those questions, FAQ style. Okay, now with that level of interaction, that's obviously something that you have to customize from one individual game to another, which means it's going to be important for somebody who's using this that it covers a lot of games what sort of of, of, of game lineup do you expect to support with Dized in the near future? Well we started with the big ones, we already we're doing Carcassonne, we're doing Seven Wonders, the Spiel des Jahres winners Ice Cool King Domino, we're doing Blood Rage Scythe there's, uh, and there's a lot more games to be announced before our Indiegogo which is starting in nine days and we're announcing more games during Indiegogo campaign as well. Right now, the app is in development, and we're, we're, we're build, building these tutorials by hand, which is very slow. But at the same time, this gives us information how these are supposed to be built the most efficient way, and we are developing a tool set that allows publishers and game developers to go and build these tutorials themselves. Basically like how websites are done now. You sign up for an online service, it's a drag and drop thing, you can build a beautiful website, but you don't need to know how to program. And this is what we're doing for board games now. So these operators can go create these tutorials and hopefully we'll get, we can have a substantial library by this time next year already. So you said you have an Indiegogo for this, or you're going to have one. Uh, is this something, if somebody, uh, did you uh, pay once and then you got it, or do you have to, I mean, is it like a, a micro transaction where you'd add, like, if, you know, next year you add 10 more games in, you, like, buy a, a pack that get, learn to play for those? The app is free to download, and using these tutorials and the rule lookup tools is going to be a free feature. Uh, the subscription model that we have unleashes the full potential of the app. This means digital expansions, new content for the games, features that help you with bookkeeping of the games, dice rolling mechanics, score trackers, timers, uh, to demos that we know from video games and soundtracks and ambient tracks that really bring that game alive on the table, to more complex things like AI players for some games and game masters that we've already, already seen on some games. All that you can do with the digital app, we can do with Dice. Oh, that's great. I didn't even realize. So the, the core teach you how to play thing, that's free for the, the end user? Yes. So this is, the, this is the feature we want to offer for free because we want to have very useful service. We don't have to uh, want to have a paywall to offer this very valuable service for people. But we do know that there's a lot more that the app can do, and that's the subs uh, subscription model that we're going with. Okay. And uh, one thing, yeah. I, one thing I should mention is that this app will be available uh, available for iOS and Android, but it's developed with Unity. 
and actually <laughs> Unity is uh, Unity is the platform that a lot of video games are built on nowadays as well. And in Helsinki, where our headquarters is, Unity is just one floor down from us. So, <laughs> so it's uh, whenever we need help from the from the platform guys, they're right there. Okay. Now we have uh, you have dyesed up on the screen here, and this is on a uh, a tablet sized device. Is this something that's only going to be available for tablets or can you just run it on like an iPhone or some other phone? The focus is actually on uh, smartphones because that's the most likely device that you have available when, when you're at a game night. That That's the device you always carry with you. We have tablets here because it's easier to show you on a bigger screen how this, how this works. But as you can see, I'm showing... I'm showing this to you right now. Uh, you can see that the buttons and everything are so big on the screen because it's actually designed to work on a smart device and the, the tablet version will be done properly later on. But I'm, what I'll do now, I'm going to turn up the volume a little bit and show you a couple of steps of the 3D animated voiceover uh, subtitle tutorial. Obviously on the podcast, the audio is <laughs> probably <laughs> the, the biggest thing that you'll be enjoying. But uh, let me jump to the first... So I'm going to skip the setup phase, go to the first turn in the game, and uh, here we go. Tile by tile. Players take turns one by one, in clockwise order. Every turn has three phases. First, you draw one tile from a stack and place it face up to continue the landscape. Then you may place a meeple on that tile to work for you. Finally, check if any feature is completed. Meeples on completed features earn you points. At the end of the game, the player with the most points wins. Time for the first phase, placing a land tile. First player, draw one tile from any stack. So now this this takes me into the game immediately. Uh, before teaching me any more rules, it's already asking me, all right, pick up a tile and let's see what happens next. You can show it to the other players. Look at the tile you just drew. In Carcassonne, each tile can hold a city, a road, or monastery. Which feature do you have on your tile? And here we get to the first uh, stage where it's, it's asking oh, for... Attention to content needs! Bonus content! <laughs> it always happens at least once during every interview. And as a bonus, it's all part of their ever-popular Bayfair Ribbon Quest program. Play games, earn ribbons, and receive prizes, including a coupon for 50% off one item. Thank you very much for that. Little did Mayfair know when they paid Gen Con, you know, umpteen thousand dollars, they were going to get an extra promo on Strange Assembly. <laughs> I think a lot of them are actually going to cut them off. <laughs> Probably. So, you, you can hear, uh, you can see that this is the, um, let me just turn the volume down a little bit. So, on the tutorial right now, it's asking me what sort of tile did I get. And I'm going to tell the app that I got a road, and let's say it also has a city on it. And right now the animation is showing me how I can place that tile uh, next to the starting tile. And also it's going to tell me how to not place that tile. So it's like the friend at the table who can show you how you can use that tile. And then we're going to go on and explain how you can place um, your meeple on that tile. And on the first turn we're actually going to only show you the place it on the road or in the city. 
we're not gonna try even to teach you how farms work on your first turn because that is really something you do, you don't need to know on your first turn. Yeah, oh, in this scenario where we've specifically drawn a tile with a road in a city on it. Yeah, exactly. I, it's specifically using this example because that's specifically the tile that we drew on our first turn, right? Exactly. And the next thing, uh, it's going to ask me, like, where do I want to place my meeple and, and tell me how that feature is scored. If I actually, I'm going to go back a couple of steps and show you that if I actually picked monastery on the, on the menu earlier when it asked me what sort of tile do I have, first of all, it's going to show me a bit different scheme, how I can actually play that, place the tile. And then it's going to... Uh, teach me uh, if I place a meeple as a monk on the monastery it's going to tell me how how this feature scores in the game but it won't because I, I picked the tile without the road so now it's not going to yet tell me how roads and cities work so through this player input we can uh, we know which roles to teach you now which roles to save you uh, teach to you later on and this way you can get into the game much quicker and still learn all the rules during the first time that you play the game. So does this have something like, so right, there's several features in, in Carcassonne that you have to learn how they score. Does it like, so when you go to the, the second player's turn, does it ask what you did? And if, let's say we go 10 turns and nobody's, somehow nobody had drawn a monastery yet. That seems one that's relatively likely. Does it have a, like a thing waiting, say click here whenever it is that somebody draws a monastery? Yes, there, there are icons that will appear on the screen. Like when, when this happens in the game, this is the information you need at that point and then let players play until that point because uh, one thing we don't want to do is try to hijack the game with the app we want to support the learning but have the focus always on the physical game on the table so basically if there is a feature like like monastery it might be that you have to play half an hour before somebody draws the, the first monastery of the game and that's the point when we want to tell you uh, what to do with, with that tile in the game but we don't want you to have to tell the app every single time you draw a new tile what you get. Only if you get a new tile that hasn't been explained yet. Okay. That seems pretty cool. I guess I'm also I'm going to go back to the... Uh, I, know some, I know Gen Con is not really about being price sensitive, but free is really nice for something like this. <laughs> yes. Uh, we want to build a big community because we want to... Uh, eventually, we want this to be the ultimate companion app. If you play board games... This is the app where you can buy your games that teaches you how to play these games, the app that allows you to upgrade these games, find local players to play with. So there's so many cool features that we can do with this app, and we're really excited about this. And as you can see, the excitement that's around us and all the games that have already been lined up for it, everybody's really keenly waiting for this. So we really hope that the Indiegogo campaign goes well starting on the 28th of August, the bigger we can make this campaign, the faster and better we can make this product. Okay. Uh, and that's that's Dized, and that's, since we're audio, I mean, that's D-I-Z-E-D. Uh, if anybody's Googling for it later this year when the Indiegogo, you said? Oh, no, in nine days. Yeah, 28, 28th of August. Uh, D-I-Z-E-D.com is the thing where you can find it. If you sign up for the newsletter before the campaign, you're going to get a... Uh, reference code that actually gives you access to our secret perk, so that that might be some that might be something that people would like to do. Okay, thanks for talk. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you. I am here with uh, Ben Looms of Sirenscape, and uh, if you've listened to the rest of the podcast already, and it really would be kind of strange if you hadn't, and, and you were already here at this point, you know that I. Um, I did the Pathfinder Friday night at the SAG, the giant annual Pathfinder Society event that they do there. And uh, one of the components of that, 
like over a thousand players role playing at the same time event that they have is custom sound and custom voices and music and and all sorts of stuff from Sirenscape and uh, and Ben here does uh, Sirenscape. So uh, what I mean, Siren, right? Your your so your sound for fantasy role playing is, but also a bunch of other stuff. So what what exactly do you do with Sirenscape? Sirenscape, in case you haven't heard, is an app that makes beautiful, immersive sound effects and a movie-like soundtrack of music for tabletop games. I specifically designed it literally just for me to help keep uh, the actions I had to take to get music going and to get the right music going as simple as possible and to keep my attention on my players and through immersion uh, and emotional reactions to keep the attention of my players on the game. That's basically what Sirenscape is. Yeah, right. And now if I've, I've messed around with it and uh, I've, I probably have not discovered the full utility, but you can you can go in there as the, the GM and you can create uh, you know background music for this session or you can create background music for a particular fight that has a little bit of music and then maybe sound effects that are appropriate to the monster. If you want to get really exotic, you can... Uh, actually cue in individual sounds for, like, the dragon does a breath weapon, and you hit a button and it does a sound for that, that sort of thing? That's exactly right. If you imagine a movie scene in a medieval town, and just imagine you could set that movie scene off in, in, your, uh, in your play, you just touch medieval town, and you have all the sounds you'd expect in a movie. You'd have the sounds of a little bit of wind in the background, maybe some people chatting in the distance, maybe a dog barks every now and then, uh, you know, maybe a cart goes past, and then a bard might play in the distance or whatever. And then imagine the movie scene changing to a red dragon attacking the city. You just touch red dragon attack, and the dragon attacks, and all the sounds you'd expect, the epic music, the epic music score thundering along, the sounds of women and men screaming and weeping, uh, breath weapons being triggered by the GM when they're actually required. Now, the key difference is that instead of just, a, say, a, like a 15-minute recording of a dragon attack, it's actually every element of that sound design that I just mentioned is controllable and customizable. So as the GM, you just touch red dragon attack and Sirenscape takes care of it all. But if you want to turn off the music and instead go over to the, sound, the storm sound set and uh, turn on some rain and some lightning and thunder, then you can drench your players as well as frying them to a crisp so that you can actually have complete control over what's playing. And everything is dynamically uh, randomized. Every one of those dog woofs that I spoke about before uh, is a whole bunch of random samples which are chosen randomly at random time intervals, distributed into the 3D environment, and reverb is even applied to them dynamically so that everything's continuous and never repeating. Yeah. Now, one of the big releases here at uh, Gen Con 50 has been Starfinder. They sold out on, on the first day. Does it make you sad that, that Sirenscape, with all these fantasy sounds, what am I going to use when I'm playing Starfinder? Well, yeah. Yeah, we have the official license. With, <laughs> for Paizo, we had it. For Pathfinder, we've made amazing sounds for their fantasy game. And yes, we've made the official sounds for Starfinder. Starfinder is the first RPG that's being released with a complete audio solution out of the box, which is just fantastic. So we have built each and every one of the starships in the core rulebook. Uh, we've, taken, we've taken the culture, which of course Pfizer's cultures and, and are just incredibly rich and descriptive, uh, and we've, we've built a small and a medium and a large version of each of those culture starships to match the stats that are in the book, including all the specific weapons that those starships fire. So 
Uh, the Pact World Starships are really kind of physical and fireflyish, and you can hear the buttons clicking. We actually sampled a torch switch, you know, going on and off, and uh, uh, the sound of a drive going in and out of an old sort of disk drive computer and things like that. When we spoke to uh, Paizo about what Cassathar Starships are like, they said, well, the Cassathar are kind of like the Apple store of Starships. So the, that Starship is quieter with a deep, warm thrum sort of at the edge of, at the edge of hearing, and there's this beautiful pings and zings and bloops in all their interfaces, so it's all very electronic. So that's really, really cool. And so what do the Corpse Fleet starships get? Yeah, absolutely. Hideous, clattering bones. The, the Vesk starships, for instance, are all metallic with big banging metal boots and flexing metal. And, and, yeah. and then when you go into combat, of course, you hit the combat button. One of the best things about the uh, Starfinder starship battle system is that every one of the players at the table gets a roll, just like in a starship in Star Trek. So when, the, when it comes to the engineer and she wants to patch a system because it's glitching or whatever, as she says she's going to do that, you just touch the engineer button and you can hear as she resolves her role and talks about it, a panel being ripped off and there's some drilling and a bit of sparks as she sort of jerry rigs something, plugs some leads together. And then by the end of her turn, you know that something's been done to the ship. When the pilot is going to make a fancy flip and burn maneuver, you just touch the helm button in the corner of your eye and there's like overtaking the sound of all the rest of the battle. These massive big engine thrums as the starship twists. And then, yeah, of course, when the, when the gunner fires the weapons, you've got the actual official sound of that weapon being fired, which you just, you just touch with your finger and then you can do damage to the enemy ship. Basically, there's something just ready to colour that scene as everything else just runs automatically in the background. Okay, that's all really cool, and I admit you can play it obviously with the awesomeness that is Pathfinder or Starfinder or just uh, you know a, a generic fantasy or sci-fi setting as well. That's right, that's the thing. Same with our fantasy things. You can play it with any game. You know, a monster's a monster and a starship's a starship. Okay, thanks for talking to us, Ben. Can I tell you how you can get it? Oh. Sure, how do type, you get it? Type Sirenscape into Google. You can misspell it if you like, obviously, but S-Y-R-A-N-Scape. You can download the app for free to try. It comes with two free sunsets, and then you can yeah, buy that Starship for, you know, for $3.99 or uh, subscribe to Unlock Everything. Thanks. Pleasure. I'm here with Adnan at the Monolith booth and here in the exhibit hall at Gen Con, and we're, gonna, we're here to talk about this. I was about to say shiny new game you have here, but really anything about the Dark Knight probably isn't shiny. Yeah, actually, you're right. Uh, hi, guys. Uh, this is Adnan. We're going to talk very briefly about our new and next uh, incoming uh, Kickstarter game, which is Batman the Board Game, which will uh, launch on February 2018. Uh, it is a game based on the same system as Conan. So for those of you who already know the system, you'll be familiar with it. It's still a one versus many games. Uh, many game, you will have one player uh, will play the villain, uh, controlling the villains uh, on the board. Uh, in the introductory scenario, we're uh, showing here Gen Con. He is controlling Bane and his henchmen, trying to blow the foundation of the GCPD. And of course, uh, you'll have to face the heroes uh, playing together. In the scenario, we'll have Batman, Red Hood, and Catwoman trying to prevent him from uh, succeeding in his evil plans. Uh, so, as I said, it's a one versus many game. The hero will play uh, together. You will still find the system of gems uh, that you will spend from your uh, reserve zone to perform actions that they will go into your fatigue zone once you, you're done. And at the beginning of your next turn, you will only recuperate a, a fraction uh, of that amount of gem. So the more you'll perform, the more uh, you will exhaust and the less you'll be able to perform in the future round. So this is kind of a, uh, a gem management system inside of an Ameritrash game. So you get uh, you get both of them in, a, in the same game. This will launch, as I said, in uh, 2018. 
2018. Uh, for those who know Conan, there are a lot of uh, addition to the to the game system. Uh, you will find the same uh, gem system, but with a lot of addition, a lot of new stuff uh, that really um, you know streamline the game, make it more fluid, and allows us to uh, tell the stories uh, of the of the Dark Knights. Okay, now uh, if I understand correctly, we're going to end up in this being able to play with several different versions of the, or having, having maybe not playing at the same time, but having several different versions of the same hero available? Yes, correctly. Uh, that's, that's correct. I mean, you, you'll be able to find in the, in the box various versions of the Batman, uh, the Joker, Killer Croc, all the uh, iconic characters you know from, uh, from the Batman universe will be available in, uh, various, in uh, various versions because, uh, as you know, these characters have lived a long time. They have been drawn by several artists. Each one of them brought uh, you know, his own uh, vision to the character. So that's something that you will find in the game. Yeah, I know. You're going to have Joker from Hush and Joker from Killing Joke. But I, I want to ask, so how, how many stretch goals until I can field a team of four heroes and have it be Dick Grayson Robin and Jason Todd Robin and Tim Drake Robin and Damian Wayne Robin as the whole hero team? Uh, it will take some stretch goals to get there. <laughs> but hopefully with your help, guys, we will get there. And uh, you, if you followed our uh, previous Kickstarter, Conan and Mythic Battles, uh, we have a, a, a strong community. Hopefully, behind us, we are very grateful for that. And hopefully, we'll get uh, a lot of stretch goals unlocked. Probably vehicles, probably alternate, as I said, version of the characters. And you'll see many more uh, things coming up. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. I'm here now with uh, Leonidas Vesperini of Mythic Games. Uh, you probably know them from Mythic Battles, which sounds an awful lot of the company. And see, that's how you keep it straight. But we're not going to have the same kind of memory cue on Joan of Arc, which is your upcoming game. So uh, what is going on with Joan of Arc? And I, I know you're going to anyway, but make sure to mention this, like, bigger than my torso dragon figure that's in the case over here. Absolutely, yes. Joan of Arc is indeed a, a new campaign, a Kickstarter campaign that we are going to launch in October, October 10th to be exact. And it's, uh, it's a very exciting game that uses 15 millimeters uh, miniatures, which is not a scale that people are used to on Kickstarter. So, and we wanted this scale to allow, because it allows for many uh, exciting things. Well, this dragon is one uh, example. Uh, when you put that big of a dragon next to a 15 mil miniature well, human, uh, it, it's a dramatic skill difference, right? And, and it makes the, the, the immersion even more impressive and you can have like spectacular effects. Yeah, I think, let's see, so if, the, if these little soldiers were an inch high, then the dragon would have to be like four feet tall, maybe? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we, we, we went down to 15 mil to, because we wanted big creatures. We wanted to have buildings in the game. You have buildings, you see? You have them, you have like a church, you have like the, these houses, and you can enter them with your minis. And when you enter the, the buildings, you can find someone who was inside, but you didn't see when he was out, when you were out. And you can search for them and find clues that will help you with the scenario you're playing. Okay, now I'm, I'm not going to claim to be an expert on Joan of Arc, but I don't remember there actually being any dragons. So, so what is the, or I think angels fighting the English. I don't remember that happening either. So what, uh, what, what is the, the setting for this uh, fantasized version of Joan of Arc? Yeah, you're right. Well, it takes place in the Hundred Years' War, which is 
the biggest war ever because it, well the last the, the longest lasting uh, war because it lasted over 100 years right and it's uh, it's in the medi- it's a medieval age uh, where knights were at their highest and then afterward they declined but when you in the 100 years war they were the most powerful warriors uh, but what we have added so we, this is a historical uh, period uh, which is a game of thrones in a way uh, because uh, you have the, the the english king who who wants the the, the french crown uh, he, he he believes he's uh, the natural leader uh, uh, he, he should be the king and the french changed the the uh, the rules they said it did, didn't carry over women so uh, they are fighting for this throne this is how the, the war started and then you have some other kingdoms that will well, make some alliances and so it's it's an interesting setting Uh, where French fight against the English, but you're right. What we added is that everything that people believed in that time, and they believed in many things, uh, they believed in witches, right? They burned them, right? So they are here in the game, and they're real. Uh, they believed in werewolves, uh, they hanged them, and we have them. Uh, they believed in many other things, ghosts, and the devil, and the demons, and the angels, and God, and they are all here. So, and they believed in dragons also, which is a, a representation of evil and, and uh, Satan himself. So he is there, and uh, you can, in this game, you can play the historical events as they happen. So, the famous battle, Agincourt or uh, Crecy or Pate, all, all of the famous battles that historical, well, that people know, that who are interested in this era know, you can play them exactly like they were, or. You can also play more fantasy things. You know, they, they believed in the apocalypse at that time. They believed the apocalypse was coming. I mean, can you imagine a war that lasts a hundred years? Several generations only knew war. And so they, they really thought that the end of the world was coming. And so they announced the apocalypse. They drew them on tapestry. Well, you can you can do that. And with the The apocalypse means that you have the devil's army, so you will, you can also play uh, a, a devil's army with uh, skeletons and uh, demons and uh, goggles and uh, uh, many, many, many things. So, if you want to play purely historical, you can. Actually, there's even a way in the game system that allows you to switch uh, a myth car, a myth deck, uh, with uh, a tactics deck. So. If you if you if you say okay well I'm interested in this era I don't want to play myth, uh, all this myth and this fantasy you can but if you want to play this then it's it's an extra uh, an extra experience I would say right yeah and now let me see if I can mix my history up now this is I mean this French versus English this is this is also when uh, the King of England was also the Duke of Normandy Well, and yes. then we're well, getting into uh, the, yeah. yeah absolutely yes the the English had uh, well were present in France. They, they had some... Uh, yes, they had some... Oh, they came from France. <laughs> oh, yes, they did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but they, they had some lands in France, right? Uh, France was not uh, united. It was separated in, in several uh, different uh, kingdoms. And they, the English had some uh, a presence in France. And sometimes they would... Uh, get a city or an, a new land because they want it, uh, they want a war and the, they, they would sign something with the, the Kingdom of France to, to stop for some years uh, the war and then they would, it would, take over, it would take over, but yes, they were there and they would make also alliance with uh, 
the Flemish or with uh, the Burgundy. Uh, you see, so it, it's a very fascinating time. And we'll have scenarios that depict that, right? Uh, uh, we'll have scenarios from the early and beginning of the of the Hundred Years' War, some from the middle and some from the, the late uh, Hundred Years' War. That means some characters won't meet others. For instance, uh, Joan of Arc will not meet the most famous uh, English uh, leader uh, from that era, which is the Black Prince. The Black Prince is very famous in England. He's a, a great warrior, a superb fighter, and but he's from the beginning. And at the beginning of the war, the English won many, many battles. And Joan of Arc won some battle for France, and it was the when the, uh, the uh, history changed. And we chose the name uh, Joan of Arc. It's not just about her. It's just simply because she's the most iconic and most famous uh, character from that era. Uh, she, everybody knows her even now, right? So this is why we chose. And if it's called Time of Legends, Joan of Arc. It's because Time of Legends is the game of the range, and it's it's a time of legends, as it says. It's uh, it's in this specific era. Uh, if it, if the the game works well, we'll have some other setting from that era, right? And we'll we'll we will provide some new uh, a new game. So we we will see. Uh, it depends on how well we'll do. Hopefully, we'll do well because we we have the same team as. The one we had for Mythic Battles, which was a tremendous success. Uh, so, during uh, Mythic Battles, we had a guy called the Voice of Olympus. He, uh, <laughs> so he he was the community manager. He would sign every uh, everything that uh, every comment he made with Voice of Olympus. This time, it will be Voice in her head, <laughs> and uh, I will still be there doing lives. Uh, I think the, the thing that people really liked is how committed we are. Uh, we, we answer comments. Uh, even after Mythic Battles uh, was finished, the Kickstarter, we kept updating people, giving them news. Uh, we've been uh, uh, giving, uh, providing an update every, uh, every week at least uh, for months. And, so, and we are on time. We are going to deliver on time. So I think... Uh, Kickstarter is a matter of trust and so far I think we have the trust of our customers and hopefully this campaign will be just as big and exciting as, as the other one. Uh, for sure we'll have more incredible things again than in uh, Mythic Battles and this dragon is the, the living proof. Uh, he's huge, very big, he will be sold as an expansion for around $60 which is not much when you look at the quality and the detail doesn't come alone he comes in a box we'll have angel an angel with him you'll have uh, ruins you'll have special dice to play him with you'll have uh, special rules to play him with and a scenario so yes and this is just one of the expansions we'll have and of course we'll also have many 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 stretch goals that we hope to unlock okay and they can uh, people can check that out in october thanks for talking to us thank you i am now at the uh Game on Tabletop Nook with uh, Laura Hoffman, and Game on Tabletop is we're hitting, I'm sort of actually these big banners that I think sum it up pretty well, which is crowdfunding for gamers by gamers. So I guess the the basic question is what does what makes it different that it's for gamers and by gamers instead of you know one of the other crowdfunding services out there? 
So Game on Tabletop has really been created with the gaming community in mind, with the gamer that we all are, because we are gamers and we are have participated in crowdfundings before and have launched our own crowdfunding projects before, and um, we know what it takes to launch a successful tabletop gaming crowdfunding campaign. Um, and this is why Game on Tabletop is crowdfunding for gamers by gamers. It, it offers a lot of features uh, that allow a much more streamlined um, process, a highly personal experience for, for the backers and for the publishers as well, um, and helps you at every step. So Game on Tabletap is everything you would want in a crowdfunding platform. I guess what does that mean in, in particular? What If I'm, which I certainly have done, if I'm going to consider like you know backing a, a crowdfunded project, how is my, what I see from the platform and from the the company going to be different on Game on Tabletop than than one of the existing crowdfunding services. So one of the big differences uh, is that on Game on Tabletop you have an included real-time pledge manager. That means that on one side the publisher sees immediately what everybody buys, including like add-ons or any early bird specials or anything you might set up. And the backer as well gets to see this during the campaign while it is live. Um, in addition to this, it's going to be the home for the gamers and to discover new and, uh, their new and favorite games. The publishers are also able to create uh, campaign pages that look and feel much more like their brand and their company to, have, to, ha- to get over this feeling of, okay, trust and, and um, yeah, this is your home, uh, you're welcome here, you know th- what, what you're getting into. And then there is a, a huge community aspect that we want to develop. We want to encourage people to share about new games they found. We want to encourage them to create their own games. We're running little events, like, for example, here at Gen Con, where people can create mini-games and bring them to us. Um, and, yeah, and get more involved into the process of creation of games together. You talked about real-time tracking of, of pledges. So that's, I know, a lot of... A lot of times the crowdfunding campaigns on other things, you you kind of have to pick a number and then after the game is over, sorry, after the campaign is over, you have to go back in and make sure that you are picking exactly what the right add-ons and all that. And so uh, the game on tabletop will automate that process or at least let you do it much more streamlined fashion up front instead of after the fact. Yes, uh, totally. So um, on many other p- crowdfunding platforms, you have the, uh, to go through a pledge manager at the end of your campaign to, f- campaign to figure out what each backer has actually bought. Um, and also during the campaign, backers need to sometimes create pledge calculators to actually know how much funds they will need to add so they get everything of, of that. On Game on Tabletop, um, you get to add these add-ons and all your items directly to your order and you see these. So there's no need for an additional pledge manager anymore. And publishers on their end, they can even see how they're standing with their production costs and development costs. They can see when they break even and how they are with their markets because they can set up their uh, their products in advance and they have a live view of how much they sold of each single item. Yeah. And I guess I hadn't thought about that from the company and they don't know either in advance what the people are going to put in from the pledge manager. Which is a real problem because you need to be able to adjust because sometimes an item might not sell as well as you wish to or it might exceed your expectations. So you will have to adjust your quotes, your production quotes that you had initially gotten. And if you want to be sure that you will have a successful project there and go out with real money earned, then um, being able to adjust is is a big key, key to that. Okay. So... 
I usually think about these things from the consumer end of it, but is there any, so what else from the, the, the production end do the, does the company who's, who's putting the crowdfunding project up on your, up on Game on Tabletop, uh, what else do they get out of it? So, in addition to a lot of features that are already implemented into the tool, that like uh, an elaborate shipping uh, section, like auto-automated updating stretch goals, so you don't have to get up at 3 a.m. in the morning, uh, and such things, we can also offer a lot of a la carte services, including um, support with uh, also consulting for your crowdfunding campaign, how to build it, with uh, dedicated marketing, um, production help, and fulfillment in international ways. Yeah, and basically make sure uh, your campaign is going to be successful because your success is our success. Yeah, well, I'd, uh, I'd, if, my understanding is that uh, yeah, board games you do continue to be a, a very, very strong crowdfunding market. Yeah, they are. It's huge. The numbers are huge that you can see on uh, recent crowdfunding campaigns. And uh, I think we can say nearly for sure that crowdfunding is here to stay for a bit because it's it's making games possible more and more and more and more publishers are really building their their company around crowdfunding so this is gonna be a bigger part in um in the gaming releases that are uh, that are coming up but um we will all be needing at some point uh, really tools that cater to the specific needs of every uh, section. So, for example, if you look at the video game uh, market that has been done very well on, on crowdfunding sites so far, on uh, Kickstarter, for, for example, but are going down the numbers there. But there are more emerging crowdfunding sites now that cater to the specific needs of those of, of those video games. And so this is what we are trying to do uh, for the tabletop gaming industry as well, to just be able to focus on what does that industry need. Well, so you guys are just mean. I mean, Kickstarter board games are one of the few segments that have not been going down, Lady and Bob's like success on Kickstarter. You're going to come and steal their best category. Uh, we just want to create a space um, of trust and of uh, shared passion around the games. And we know what it takes to run a crowdfunding campaign. And we know um, that you lose a lot of time um, if you have these missing tools. Um, and so we just want to share that what we have already created for the, these people that might fi find it helpful. Uh, and when do you uh, expect campaigns to, to get going on Game on Tabletop? So our tool has been around in France already for the last four years and has been very su successful there in the role-playing game industry. And so we launched the international global launch for Game on Tabletop in June of this year. And we have had four campaigns running so far, so some late pledge campaigns and some real uh, new campaigns. Um, and so, yeah, we're, we're looking forward to having more and more projects uh, tingling uh, over time. Okay, thanks for talking to us. Thank you very much. Oh, and there we're back. So that was kind of like Saturday afternoon, those interviews. If you remember last year, I had a lot more interviews. That's one of the reasons why there's just less audio this time for the non-L5R stuff. But this year, because I had the L5R tournament scheduled, I just did not have a lot of time. So I ended up with these scheduled interviews really only on Saturday afternoon because Saturday afternoon was a time when I absolutely positively knew there was no L5R. <laughs> <laughs> that ends a lot of it for me, because I finished up my Saturday with the second Pathfinder thing, and then on Sunday I was hitting Starfinder, and then just some more 
looking around and purchasing in the the dealer hall. Like some of that's going to be photos if you go look on the Facebook page. So is there any, anything else that you have not hit up yet for your non-L5R time at Gen Con, Mike? I don't think so. I think that's pretty much it. There was a lot of L5R time. It's the perpetual thing we can say every single year. Like, you could have so much more time at Gen Con and still not do everything. Yeah. This year, I'm not usually big on seminars, but there were, in addition to all the other things, because this was Gen Con 50, there were a lot of seminars I wanted to go to, and I didn't because it's hard for me to pick going to the seminar over, you know, playing in the tournament game or whatever, but they... You know, 30 years of Star Wars and just a lot of historical stuff, things about how big D&D was and then being somebody at Gen Con, a company at Gen Con that wasn't D&D <laughs> during that time, the launch of Magic, basically the history of the World of Darkness, kind of, I mean, just all these historical things. Yeah, there's just so much. You could make it three times as long or make it three conventions. Of course, if you made it three conventions, I'd have a hard time justifying going to three of them. So, you know, there's a reason why it's all at once. But it's it's just a, a shame. And that, that came up this year more than others, even, even more than others. Because especially last year when L5R went away, I got so used to having relatively more time to schedule things. And even, out with a, even without a big tournament game I wanted to do, you could have been doing three different things at every given time slot. This year, adding Legend of the Five Rings back in, like, I loved playing that, but I also missed being able to do, like, almost anything else. Yeah. My organized stuff was really, like, L5R and and then Pathfinder and Starfinder. I did all these other things that we've talked about. It felt like it was trying to cram in around the edges, and it was fun, but you wish so much you had more time. I did walk through basically the entire four. I usually try to, not necessarily looking at absolutely everything, but pretty much everything I can, because uh, the uh, the guide that tells you, oh, here here's this and here's this or whatever, or the thing, the lists of things that people want to see. I don't know; those just don't guide me very well. So I end up just walking the entire floor as much as I can. And. There's a lot of stuff. It feel, felt like there was more stuff this year even than any previous year. But it also felt like I just, I've gotten really picky with games because there's so many games and so many of them are reformulations of the same mechanics, which is just natural and normal. But something has to be like really grab me to make me pay attention anymore. And I saw a lot of stuff that just didn't grab me that much. Uh, you know, and maybe it was a fuzz brain from uh, standing in line for so long and then being like 13 or 14 hours in a tournament for a game that's very, it's pretty hard on your brain. I actually did not this year walk the, literally the entire floor. It would be fun. I mean, you'd have to have the time to dispose of it, but it would be so neat if you were, I guess, kind of at an income level where you could just walk through Gen Con be like wow that looks neat and just buy it (laughs) (laughs) you know well because there's when you walk through the hall there's not just a lot of games i mean obviously there are lots and lots of games but there's also just a lot of stuff that goes along with that there's lots of costume sort of stuff there's lots of general geekery sort of stuff like oh 
it's a place that's selling, you know, D20 ear, like earring, D20 earrings or something like that. What are the chances my wife would wear those? I, you know, like (laughs) you could just buy them, but it's sort of like splurgy thing that maybe when you've shelled out, God only knows how much on games you shouldn't. Yeah, there's a lot of wardrobe stuff. The continued surge in um, furniture makers for this. Geek Chic, they they went bankrupt. So I don't know what I don't know what that says about them versus the market for I don't know what, but they're just continue to be people making and like and displaying at Gen Con or on Kickstarter or whatever these gaming tables. They somebody finally made a there's a gaming table. I think they were they were at Gen Con and I think they're on Kickstarter now where it's a it's designed to be a portable table instead of one of the wooden ones it's more plastic and metal so you can fold it up but they actually made it as big as i would like nice it's game anywhere that's what he like so it's a game anywhere table right now there are two different there's also the table of ultimate gaming on kickstarter right now i would kind of like if i'm gonna buy like a gaming table and some of these are cheaper i mean when i say cheaper i mean like eight hundred dollars instead of two thousand dollars none of these are cheap in an objective sense but like i would like it to be five feet wide because if you have a game table that's four feet wide which is where a lot of them stop that ends up pretty cramped for some games if you have a big board and then each player has like a player mat on the side so i'd i'd like five by six or something, that would be a five by six or more. That would, I don't think you'd want it to be more than five feet. I think that'd be pretty good. And of course, you want a completely different table if you're doing something like playing card games, like a tournament card game. Three feet is probably enough because that does not take up a lot of space, but that's not what I need. Like, I don't have card game tournaments in my house. Right. Uh, <laughs> I can just play that on a normal table if we're like for, all right, you can for kitchen table, whatever. And you can actually just play on the kitchen table. But there's just a whole bunch of things. And there is, if you go to Gen Con every year, I maybe some of that fades in the background because some of it's the same thing every year. And like you said, right, there is, there's the booth that's got the old CCGs. There's the booth that always has the buy one, get three free old role-playing game supplements, which like I usually get something from, but didn't this year because I think I've just gone and got it all at this point. Right. Can you imagine if you had never been to Gen Con before and like having that whole exhibit hall there of stuff you'd never seen? I figure probably what would happen is that you would wander around the big booths and that would probably take up enough of your time that you might hit like a couple of the smaller booths. But Yeah, but if you could go through and all these have the little small booths of the independent publishers they've got like the one demo table which also makes it very hard like even for the small companies it's hard to to get the demo like right when you want the demo because they've only got space in that booth if they have space for a demo at all they've got space for like one they're not generating the interest of like fantasy flight but you know you gotta look at it and either be willing to wait or just happen to get lucky and show up at the right time Sometimes you don't miss it all. I finally found out where Cowboy Bebop was too late to actually try oh, to play it. There? It wasn't in the exhibit hall. You had to, they had tables out in the, like in the tournament hall. Gotcha. Lynn Vander did, which is the, the designer 
group. There was nothing about it at the jazz at the Jasco booth, which was like half Buffy. There was a little bit there last year. That thing must have been doing really well because that was half of their booth this year, and their booth was substantially. I I think their booth was definitely bigger this year than it was last year. I guess nostalgia must be king because there's a lot of game companies doing nostalgia stuff. That's like what that property hasn't been a thing in 20 years, and there's like nothing new for it. Yeah, and. Yet I here I am buying. I actually don't own the. I don't have the Buffy co-op game yet. I do have, like I, I bought Legendary Buffy and like what was Upper Decks? Big thing was like Legendary Big Trouble in Little China. I had no idea that was like a thing. And there was another Big Trouble in in Little China game released this year. And there were multiple. I I talked about the Catalyst Master of Orion deck building game. Uh, I didn't get the chance to play, but uh, Cryptozoic has a Master of Orion game. Yep. That just they they released. Right? I mean, you do that for a reason, right? I mean, look, I I look at these games. If you tell me you have, oh, it's a cooperative game where people go around trying to solve a mystery or or defeat supernatural threats, that may or may not get anywhere depending on how you throw the pitch. But like if it's oh, blah, 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 Buffy, I'm like, oh, Buffy, I like Buffy. Yeah. There's a reason why you do that, and that can that can not only get attention, but it can make the game more more fun too, especially if you're the theming that's built into some of that stuff. Right. When the players have some idea of what things are, now instead of like generic ability 267, it's you're like, oh yeah, I get it. That's like that time Xander did such and such. It makes the game more exciting, even if like you could you could even if it's the exact same game. It not only makes people more likely to pay attention to it, but it can make the game more fun. Even without mechanically changing a thing. To me, it can also backfire, because sometimes I'm like, oh, this is a mechanic that is really weird, and they're justifying it by tying it to this event, which I just feel is like a nostalgia bump, and if it doesn't hit for me, it's... like It could go both ways, I feel like. You can make a game that's bad. The game still has to be good at the end of the day, and... And yeah, you can't be like, oh, well, the most thematic way to handle this would be, well, in this, the character died, so... Event. If you're playing Wash, you're out of the campaign. But right, yeah, you don't do that because that would be bad gameplay. And and if you have a game that's not that good and you just slap a license on it, that's not going to make it a good game. It might make people pay attention to it and buy it, but it's not going to make it a good game. And it might be that you have something that's a decent game but really has nothing to do with the property and you have not built a game that suits the property. You've built a game and you've licensed the property and and such as such as life or i don't know i mean that sometimes you could think that there's a bad fit right tom vassal on the dice tower has a um i believe I, I, it would be fair to say a dislike of the dc deck building game because he thinks that thematically it does not really like why when i beat the villains do the villains go into my deck and then i do a thing with them and I never really took that super seriously until this year. I, I have not really gone into the board game geek math trade because I don't think people usually want to hear about what games I traded for because they're not generally brand new ones. But I traded for some DC deck building game stuff. And the reason I did that is because my kid loves superheroes and we play Marvel Legendary all the time. And like, okay, this is the DC one. And that actually kind of that threw him for a loop when we tried to play the DC deck building game is that he just did not understand what was up with the villains. Because in Marvel Legendary, you're the heroes and you beat the villains and 
that's that. In the DC deck building game, like all of the stuff like equipment is in the same spot as Mr. Freeze and I'm buying the equipment or I'm buying Mr. Freeze. What? And like, he just, like that actually mattered to him that it, there actually is a disjoint there between the mechanics and the the flavor in that way. I mean, that's, I don't know. That's not a, that, that, that is not a game that is thematically deep. That is not, not really designed around the theme. I don't think it's just, it's a deck building game that has superhero pictures for the most part. Mm-hmm. But obviously, once you set aside L5R, playing Pathfinder and like the Starfinder release were the no- most noteworthy things for me at this one. I know on the podcast we don't really talk about role playing games all that much. It's mostly focused on on board games and I mean specifically L5R of late, but a lot of things. But that was just really a ton of fun. And then someday I'll have to bring a kid with me and that will change everything again. <laughs> <laughs> or, I mean, I say have to, cause at this point it would be have to, at some point it would be get to. Right. My oldest, like, he's like, I want to go. I'm going to go. I'm like, you're seven. What am I going to do with you? Like, <laughs> like, trust me, you would be miserable following me around for, for 16 hours. I, <laughs> that's what confused me. I, I have to say, uh, so the main crushes for, for Gen Con tend to be, Thursday, right after the doors open in the dealer's room, and Saturday, because that's just when everybody's there, and also Sunday, because that's like more family day or whatever. But Thursday, in, in like the crush of people trying to get to wherever, uh, you know, whatever booths they're trying to get to, to get whatever product they're trying to get, I saw at least a couple of families that were carrying around, like, they had like a stroller and had like a three-year-old. I'm like, why are you here right now? Like, I, I know for some families, you know, you just have to do it when you can do it or whatever. It just, it seemed like you could just wait until the afternoon. It'll be a much better situation. They're there for the same reason you are. It didn't look like they were. They weren't in line for anything. They looked like they were more like casual there. Casually, you know, I don't know exactly, but I just feel like, why would you do this to yourself? There's no good time to be in an exhibit hall, in the exhibit hall with a stroller. There True. just isn't. Plenty of people do. I feel like kid-wise at Gen Con, you see more infants than older children because they're still at an age where you can just strap them on. Right. Like you just strap them on your chest and you carry them around. Sure. You can do that sort of stuff. If you have a, you know, the baby there, it's either asleep or it's eating or, you know, it's, it, 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 they're not at the age where they like need to run around. And one and will get bored because they're not really their bored isn't a thing when you're six months old. You know you're just either comfortable or cranky. <laughs> Those are really the two modes, yeah. right? But I, I mean, and I can see wanting to do that, but that is that's going to Gen Con and just also having the kid there, which is different from bringing the the, the child to Gen Con so that they can do stuff. It's not of like, I want to go and oh, I don't have anything else to do with you, so I'll drag you along. It's like he wants to come. It's just that he's not capable of playing in like a card game tournament yet. Right. We'd probably be okay in the dealer hall, but he's not going to be able to sit there and play a demo with me. Uh, he's going to get bored, justifiably bored to death in line if we're like if we're in a two-hour-long line. Yep. And so when they're older... It'll be great. Or if they were just there on a limited way, like the family had 
other stuff to do in Indy or something like that. And they just spent a few hours, you know, you had like you set a certain chunk of side of, of time aside for that. But if I brought my family, that means I'd have to get like a real hotel room by myself, which would just increase the cost astronomically. It would be a complete waste of family vacation money. Right. So I like Indian all, but not as a family vacation at $350 a night for the hotel. <laughs> Why? You're like, here, hang out around Gen Con. That probably is a sign that I should bring this behemoth of a post-Gen Con episode to a close. And remember, there will be a L5R post-Gen Con episode. Don't worry. Stick around. So it's nice nice talking to you again, Mike. It's kind of weird, too. We used to, I used to do the podcast with all people I saw all the time. Now I do the podcast with people I like only see at places like Gen Con. It's life. Yeah. What are you going to do? You have been listening to Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. You can find us on the web at www.strangeassembly.com. You can subscribe to the podcast there or on iTunes, Google Music Play, uh, all sorts of places. Uh, you can find us on social media. We are facebook.com slash strangeassembly or at strangeassembly on Twitter. You can contact me directly. I always love to hear your feedback, be it positive or negative. I am Chris at strangeassembly.com. But until then, for Mike Cook, I'm Chris Stevenson, and you've been listening to Strange Assembly. Never stop gaming.